Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Etrick and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing fine. Everybody, get comfortable. Well, let's see, last time Rob promised a 37-minute episode and delivered outside of the, now, to be fair, outside of the Who's Who and the Legion. Uh, I think the longest episode we've ever had, Rob, well done. It was a very long show. (laughs) Well, we're going to try not to keep you that long this time. However, Sean, our buddy Sean Ross from the Secret Wars podcast is asking us to do a long show because apparently he has to travel and wants us to entertain him. Sorry, we're not your monkeys there, Sean. You have to find your own ways to entertain yourself like the kids used to in the old days. Like, play the license plate game or something, okay? Like uh, Casey Kasem, his special dedication to Sean Ross. (laughs) All right, folks. Well, in the interest of time, why don't we just hop right into some stuff here? Why don't we do our in-stock trades uh, recommendations right out of the gate? Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, Rob? Based on a listing in this very book, I am recommending Dead Man, Volume 4. This is uh, reprints DC Special Series number 8, DC Comics Presents number 24, and the Dead Man Solo Stories from Adventure Comics 459 through 466. Uh, Look at the names on this cover. Len Wein, Jim Aparo, Bob Haney, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name. name. It actually says that on the cover. Uh, The normal (laughs) price, no, it does not. The normal price is $14.99. In stock trades price, $7.49. That's 50% off for 168 pages of Dead Man Solo stories. And if you haven't read the Dead Man Solo stuff from the uh, run of Adventure Comics when it was a dollar book, it's really great stuff. Drawn by JLGL, great cover by Apero, fun, fun comics. Dead Man, Volume 4. I gotta say, if you're if you're not gonna get some Neil Adams Dead Man, then those are definitely the best best option of creators. Oh wow, that Love sounds it. fantastic! All right, folks, I have picked Doctor Midnight trade paperback, the new printing. Um, this this is the collected three issue miniseries. I had uh, written by Matt Wagner, art by John K. Schneider the uh, third. It's 160 pages, full color. Normally retails for 14.99. Right now, you get a 42 percent off. It's only eight dollars and sixty nine cents. All right, eight dollars and sixty nine cents. That is what, like $3 an issue, maybe? Guys, this comic was freaking great. It's it's not the it's not Charles McKnighter, uh, Dr. Midnight. It's the successor, the one who came about just before the JSA series. And you're maybe wondering, is Dr. Midnight in this issue of Who's Who? Well, no, he's not. But what there is in here is an amazing art piece by John K. Schneider III. Uh, I yep. assume, yeah, the guy is an amazing artist. And this book is gorgeous. It's written by Matt Wagner, so you know it's awesome. The character went on to great fame in the JSA series. you got to check this out if you haven't yet. Go pick it up. So, folks, for these and all your trade paperback needs, please visit InSockTrades.com. Now, before we get going, we've got a very special announcement, folks. Rob and I are very excited about this. Rob and I, believe it or not, have been invited as featured guests yeah, at the Baltimore Comic Con 
Oh my gosh, so excited about this. And by the way, by featured guests, the, the definition of that means um, Rob and I will be paying our own individual airfares, our own individual <laughs> hotel, uh, our entry ticket. And uh, if you'd like to go to our autograph session, just meet us behind the convention center when the security guard isn't doing his rounds. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're going. It's going to be a blast. We're having a great time. We're going to, some of our friends from the show are going to be there. Darren Ruth Sutherland from the Rad Adventures Network is going to be there. Derek Crabb from the Fan Holes podcast is going to be there. Tom Panarese from uh, Pop Culture Affidavit is going to be there. Keechee Baker, who's one of our big, big buddies. Um, well, he's not big. He's actually pretty short. Pretty short. I mean, he's, he's like he's like Oberon height. But anyway, uh, Luke, the dastardly uh, creative Luke Dobbs is going to be there. The amazing creator David Gallagher is going to be there. Tom Zoller. Rob's old roommate is going to be there, and a lot more folks. So we are looking forward to it. Folks, if you can make it to the Baltimore Comic Con, we would love to see you there. As I told Derek Crabb when I recorded with him a couple days ago, if he can't come, just send the jacket. <laughs> I've been promoting all over Facebook, Derek Crabb's Transformers jacket will be at Baltimore Comic Con. Oh, and Derek, too, if you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be doing uh, – the jacket's going to be doing a signing on Saturday from 2 to 3. <laughs> It's going to be amazing. If you, don't, if you don't know what we're talking about, it's this white – I guess it's white satin probably. White, <laughs> I don't know what it is. White I think satin it's... jacket for Transformers. It, Rob fell in love with it. it I do. Problem. I love it. It was forged from the heavens itself. Right, two boxes, you know, all over the boxes all over this thing, and yet Rob loves it. It's crazy. <laughs> so, all right, folks, we are going to talk about Who's Who in the DC Universe, issue number three. Very excited about this. Remember, if you want to get involved, and a lot of you seem to want to, uh, please leave your feedback on our website. Rob, what's that website? Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep. We'll also have an image gallery there as well, so you'll be able to see, eh, you know, a handful of different entries from this issue. And uh, also, if you're on the other, like the Twitters and the Facebooks, please use our hashtag, PoundFWPodcast. And when I say those, uh, you guys want to get involved, we had 84 comments on our website. Oh, my gosh, for the last episode, which, which doesn't top at the most comments ever. I think that was from Who's Who number one, but mm-hmm. it's pretty darn close. So, wow. Okay. Almost rang the bell. I tell you. All right, so Who's Who in the DC Universe number three, cover dated October 1990. It was on the shelves August 28th, 1990. It was $4.95. Wow, that kind of breaks the bank, but it's worth it. And on the cover this time is Hal Jordan, Green Lantern. We're going to hold off on talking about that because it's the same image as the inside entry for Hal, so we'll talk about that then. Um, really, not a, I mean, the cover's just kind of the same format as always, so let's just get right into it. The inside text piece is identical to uh, last time. You know, it's uh, so nothing new to add there. Again, let's point out, Rob. I think you were pretty high in Arlene Lowe last time. Am I right? She's done. She's done a great job so far. So far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's supposed to be some foreshadowing right there, folks. Okay, first entry: Alfred Pennyworth. Woof. All right, so we've got this beautiful full page. Uh, all, all of them. You know, I didn't explain, and Rob loves this part, so I should take a second to do that, folks. All right. So if you're not familiar with the Who's Who format, this is the loose leaf, loose, loose leaf, easier for you to say, loose leaf edition where it came shrink wrapped, right? And inside are 24 entries per issue. Uh, the front side is a pinup art with the logo of the character. It's full size, full bleed. It's full, huge, huge, bigger than a comic book. The back side is text with some of the insert images, includes your personal data, you know, height, weight, etc. Height, uh, sorry, history, powers, weapons, all that business. And one of the cool things on the back are these color codes, which just totally befuddle Rob, but the rest of us love them. There are these color codes which label. I think they befuddle me. I just don't think they're good. (laughs) But if you read the comments, everyone else thinks they're amazing. So anyway, you get uh, the red borders are for heroes, the black borders are for villains, the blue borders for supporting cast, purple supernatural, orange is aliens, green is geography, and yellow is 
technology. And Rob, I'll give you a little hint. There's another one coming down the line. It's like in like, I don't know, 10 issues or so. It's going to be awesome. Anyway, and this edition of Who's Who really is focused on the current DC Universe at the time rather than the entire history. And our goal is to try and describe these entries as best as we can so that if you don't have the issue in front of you, uh, that you can still follow along and not feel the need to flip through a binder while you're on an airplane, Sean Ross, uh, and, and embarrass yourself. So. Okay, back into, sorry, Alfred Pennyworth. So Alfred has just, uh, he's clearing away, he's in the back cave, he's clearing away dinner from Bruce Wayne. Bruce is there without his cape and his cowl looking over a computer, and uh, Alfred is looking sort of sideways at you, uh, as you as he's walking through the bat cave. And one of the things I love about this is it's got Alfred Pennyworth's name in just a standard font, but it's got the bat logo behind it, the the really cool, kind. Of, I don't know how to describe it, like an angular bat logo. I love that. What do you think of the front? Yeah, it's nice. It's drawn by Eric Schenauer, who I'm a big fan of. He drew um, the Secret Origin of the JLA for in uh, Secret Origin number Secret Origins number thirty one. Uh, he didn't typically do a lot of uh, DC Comics art, or at least superhero stuff. So I was happy that uh, he drew this. Uh, I don't think it's the most exciting pose in the world, but it's Alfred. I mean, yep. you know what he's supposed to do. I mean, it's not like he's like going to be like a secret agent, the star of his own <laughs> TV series, or something ridiculous like that. So you know, uh, it. it it tells you everything you need to know. You see Batman in the Batcave, and you see the, the giant penny and the Joker card. So, I mean, if you've never heard of this character, although I don't know who has it at this point, it tells the story in the image, which is what it's supposed to do. Yep. It's really well done. And you're right, I did some research. Eric, yeah, has no connection with the Batman franchise, so I, I couldn't figure out why he was doing it. Either way. So Alfred's history goes into here, talks, you know, I mean, you guys probably know Alfred's history. If not, maybe you'll be able to see it on television. Who knows? Um, in, in here, they do some interesting things I found. They talk about how he used to be an actor. And then, of course, he went into the Army and received a lot of medical training, which he obviously uses to keep Bruce alive. He is six foot and only 160 pounds. Dude, that is crazy skinny. Woof. That's like no time to, he has no time to cook for himself. He's so busy that's wrapping right. up Bruce Wayne's bandit, Bruce Wayne's injuries and stuff. That's a, that's like Rob Kelly skinny. Uh, he is a third generation butler to the Waynes. Both uh, his father and grandfather were, and they do talk about his dry wit, which I'm glad they mentioned this because I don't know at what point Alfred became really sarcastic. Like uh, I, to me, it happened in the '80s. Maybe it happened much earlier. But as far as that biting wit that Alfred's known for, uh, they do reference it here. So I'm always happy. Do you have an idea when that kind of came into play? I think that is retroactively added to the character after The Dark Knight Returns because he's really? all super sarcastic in The Dark Knight Returns because he's old crotchety Alfred. Okay. So I think, I think modern writers took that and said, oh, let's make him heaven like that. Now, one thing I did want to mention, it's, it's funny you, you read this history. We now know that uh, Alfred's history as the outsider has been uh, <laughs> scrubbed with the crisis. You stole my bit. I was going to ask oh, you if sorry. you noticed anything missing. So that, yep, I don't know. Yep. It's fine. No, it's fine. No outside. Because he didn't get a listing, of course, in the previous uh, version of Who's Who, on, uh, other than his form as the outsider. Well, he got one in an update, but yeah, the original right, Bruce Wayne right. did not. Yep, yep. And uh, they do talk about in here how he's able to mimic Bruce Wayne on the phone, which has got to be awkward given that you know that's his boss. I mean, I don't know. That could create some real problems. Uh, Alfred's first appearance was Batman number 16 from April to May 1943, so he goes all the way back. Wow. And at this point in history, as far as um, what was going on with Alfred and the Bat books, Batman was on issue 455, which was leading right up, I mean, like three issues away from Tim Drake. Bat you know, they're battling the Scarecrow where Tim Drake finally becomes the Robin he was always meant to be. So that's where we are on the Batman timeline. And uh, for more on Alfred Pennyworth, check out the Nightcast, Batman Nightcast, right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Or you can check out Michael Bailey um, and Andrew Leyland's uh, Overlook Dark Knight podcast as well. All right. Up next is Apocalypse uh, by Paris Cullens and Will Blyberg. And uh, there is a creative I mentioned here by, of course, Jack Kirby. Should have mentioned that. And uh, it's, it's this 
in the foreground, you've got you know the the slaves of apocalypse, the hunger dogs. I couldn't come up with the name. They're pushing along. It looks like a, a rock of some sort. You see them all in prison uniforms, being loaded into ships, and they're being overseen by Granny Goodness and some of the other uh, cronies of apocalypse. You see Dart Dasadwe in the background, and there's the giant statue of apocalypse in the back, back, back. It's an okay picture. I mean, you certainly get the sense of suffering in it, but uh, you know, it's 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 fine. It's very serviceable. What, what do you, how do you feel about it, Rob? I liked it. Uh, the, the face of Darkseid in the background reminds me of the, the mountain you used to see in the uh, the Fraggle Rock or something. <laughs> it kind of looks like a Muppet. Actually, no, it looks like the Muppets that were on Saturday Night Live in the, in the first season. It has that Because there was like a talking mountain on that show. Oh my gosh. So that's kind of what it looks like there. My favorite image actually is on the back. The inset of Granny Goodness, I just love how hideous her face is. Like, it's so wrinkly and angry, and she's all like, Rrr. I just, I find that image very, very funny to look at. You know who she looks a little bit like? Ed uh, Asner. Well, we, I think we all think she looks like Ed Asner now, because, of course, they cast him as Granny Goodness in Superman the Animated Series, one of the most brilliant pieces of casting those guys ever did. And that's saying something, because that show was great at that. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, I think someone said we need to come up with an affectation for Andrea Romano, like, you know, the uh, sort of a praise be your name sort of thing, because mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. her amazing casting. We'll, we'll, have, we'll have to think on that. So, um, you know, by the way, the texture is written by Peter Sanderson. I should have mentioned that it was written, um, Alfred's was also written by Peter Sanderson. And it's, I mean, I'm not going to go into the details. It's a typical story of Apocalypse. It talks about how it and the history of New Genesis and the wars and all that. It doesn't, you know, nothing, nothing that we don't know already. If, you've, if you're this far into the third episode of this show, you know the history of Apocalypse already. We've covered it several times. Uh, a couple of things that are worth mentioning. They do talk about Yuga Khan in this, who is Darkseid's father, who was a former ruler of Apocalypse, and he's being mentioned here simply because about this time in the New Gods comic, which was on issue 20 on the shelves, Yuga Khan came back and was uh, battling for control of, of Apocalypse. They also mentioned Sleaze, everybody's, uh, everyone's <laughs> least favorite uh, Apocalypsean that Jack Kirby did not create. And uh, I, I, I always get a kick when they mention Armageddon because I just think that's hysterical. So. <laughs> For more information on Apocalypse, they will eventually get to their coverage of this stuff on the Kirby cast. You should check that out. All right, up next is Black Racer, and it's this great paint, uh, drawing by Steve Lytle. It's the character of the Black Racer. He, if you don't know him, he, he's basically it's an African-American guy in a sort of dark, dark blue jumpsuit, and he is on skis, like snow skis, and he's got snow poles. I'm, I'm not kidding. Uh, and he's got sort of a train, you know, the front of a train on, on his mask there. So I'm not really describing it that well, but uh, Steve Lytle has illustrated quite well, and he's like coming through a boob tube right, uh, boob, boom tube right at you. What, what do you think of this one? <laughs> it's a great image. I mean, Steve Lytle manages to make this character almost look cool. Uh, I mean, clearly, you know, Jack Kirby was like, I can't use Silver Surfer anymore, so I will do Black Racer. Uh, it's a great image. Steve Lytle, superb artist. Uh, I like how sort of vaguely shiny and metallic. Uh, he looks in the uniform mm-hmm. and stuff. So, yeah, it's a beautiful... Like I said, this character, I was just kind of like, what? And I like the inset of him sliding in uh, there as uh, Calabac and Orion are fighting, of course. But, uh, yeah, I I've never was a huge fan of this character, although I don't have much of a history with him. It's really the image. It's very powerful. I love how up close it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I yeah. think that's... Uh, he's, like, he's, like, bursting at the seams of the page. Well, the crouching of a, of a skier works to their advantage because it helps them fit in the page and be that much right. closer. Yeah. So, and, and I feel sort of the same way you described as well. I don't have a lot of attachment to this character. But I, I got to ask, and, and it's even in my notes, oddly enough that you mentioned it, the whole Silver Surfer comparison. You know, Silver Surfer riding a surfboard, Black Racer riding snow skis. I mean, do you think Jack created this as a joke? 
or you think he was legitimate? I mean, Silver Surfer, Black Racer. I mean, you think he was legitimately going for something here, or he's just like, well, I'm just gonna make another one, or he's cracking I, a joke? So or- I don't think it was a joke. I think he was he wanted to have a similar character to serve a similar purpose. Because I think from what I remember, Black Racer kind of talks like Silver Surfer in okay. sort of very pro, you know, very formalized language and stuff like that. From what I remember, again, I haven't read a comic with Black Racer in it in a very very long time. But I just think Jack was like, I want a similar character, so I'll do this one. I mean, Silver, yes. Yeah, Silver Surfer, Black Racer. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, st- as far as I can tell, Steve Lytle has no connection to these characters, but again, he did a great job on the image. Uh, if you don't know the character, he is the Angel of Death. He has a death touch, and he basically he's he's called upon, and, and he appears when it's time to take someone's life, usually if it's involved with the story, obviously. And, and the way it works out is... There was a battle with Apocalypse, and some piece of it came to Earth. Either way, there was a Vietnam War vet who was paralyzed in a hospital, and he was mute. He couldn't speak, but somehow he merged with Black Racer, and so now he transforms into Black Racer, and he's the one skiing around and doing all this stuff, and then he comes back to the bed. Interesting. All right. Up next is... Oh, I didn't talk about New Gods where they are because, I mean, we already talked about what's going on in the New Gods at this time. But uh, first appearance was New Gods, first series, issue number three in June to July 1971. Look at that. Rob was just a baby. So, all right. <laughs> Up next is Brainiac, art by Carrie Gamble and Brett Breeding. And this is one of my uh, preferred uh, uh, pieces of the book because I think they did a really, really nice job filling the space. A lot of times with this new format, the artists aren't really sure how to lay it out and how to use all the space effectively. Even though we like the Black Racer, there really was a lot of dead space around the outside. Here, you're looking at Brainiac standing inside his ship. He's messing with the buttons on the ship. And in the background behind him, the whole ship has got lots and lots of detail. Looks great. The only downside is the planet Earth has no cloud cover, therefore we're all dead. But other than that, I, I really think it's a short piece. He's got his black bodysuit, his big purple cape, and this is during the phase where he was green and he had the yellow goatee and he was bald. What do you think? Oh, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Um, I, I, I wasn't reading Superman at this time, so I'm not familiar with this version particularly. But I look at it and I think it feels like the perfect distillation of the two previous versions of Brainiac. Because, of course, the first version, he was running around in the short shorts and the pink right. shirt. And then you did. The, then they went way the other way, where he turned into the superpowers figure, where he was like the robot with the ass kicking action. Mm-hmm. And this version is kind of you know more towards the one than the other, but but kind of the hybrid of both. And I think it looks perfect. I mean, I've, I've talked before about how much I like um, Tom Grum or Carrie Gamble. I mm-hmm. think Carrie Gamble and Tom Grummer, two guys that are kind of like underrated. I think they just delivered. Really solid artwork. Brett Breeding, an amazing inker. I think one of the best comic book inkers probably ever. So I think this is just like a perfect image. And it's it's like he looks like what you would imagine Brainiac to look like, but it's updated. It just looks, looks super cool. I wish there had been a figure of this. It looks great. Mm, that would be cool. Yeah, this was a great period with Brainiac. This whole era of uh, the, the post-crisis Superman a few years after, right around the time of the engagement, all that, uh, really, really sharp. And to give you some point of reference here, this is about 18 months prior to the Panic in the Sky storyline, which is a fantastic Brainiac alien invasion on Earth storyline. It, it was only in the Superman books, but it felt like a company-wide crossover because they brought so many characters in. I'm sure you can find a collection of it somewhere. Definitely worth reading if you haven't read it yet. 
Now, uh, when we flip it over here onto the backside, you get the, the inset pictures, which are great. It's got, uh, well, you know, I should tell you his history first. Okay, so this version of Brainiac, um, the deal is he's from Kalu, same as always. He, there's two different races that live on Kalu. They're the green-skinned Kaluans, and then there's the computer tyrants, and they rule everything. And uh, this Brainiac was one of the green-skinned ones, and he began to gain power, and he tried to overthrow the tyrants, but he failed. And when he failed, his atoms were dispersed around the cosmos. Well, the atoms made their way to Earth, and they found this psychic guy. He was like a circus psychic. Turns out he really had powers. His name was Milton Fine, and Brainiac possessed Milton Fine, and uh, they had he had quite a few encounters with Superman, and as he did, he began to transform. He started off just looking like Milton Fine with long uh, red hair and a goatee and stuff, but eventually, you know, the hair was gone. He started, his face, his skin started to turn green. You know, his body had been enhanced, so by that point, you get to the, what, the version we are seeing here, and, uh, and, and at this point, he's even built a ship, and he's out in space now. So the inset pictures are Milton Fine with obviously something's happening to his head. He's got this green energy around him. He's like, Arr! you know. Then the next picture is him in the sort of the halfway step where he wore this ridiculous pink and black costume. Uh, and he's zapping Superman there. And his skin is still pink. And the final one is, of course, the uh, the awesome Brainiac ship that we all love from the Superpowers era, which they did carry over to this version of Brainiac blasting off into space. It looks fantastic. His first appearance is action. The historical version was Action Comics number 242, so that's July 1958. Wow, that goes back a long ways. And then the modern day version is from Adventures of Superman number 438, which is March 1988. So, love this one. And for more on Brainiac, you can check out the From Crisis to Crisis so Superman podcast for this era of Superman. And also on the JLU cast, they'll eventually be getting some very critical issue, uh, episodes that feature Brainiac. All right. Up next is Brainiac 5 with art by Chris Sprouse and Al Gordon. And uh, on the cover here, you've got uh, Brainiac. It's during the five-year-later era, so of course he's got a mullet. And he is uh, experimenting with these test tubes and beakers, and there's all this handwriting behind him. And it's just sort of a, sci a scientist sort of picture. What do you think of this one? Uh, it's nice. I, I have to think that the, that language in the background mm -hmm. that like sort of I always feel like if if we look at it in a mirror or something or if we have some sort of uh, Rosetta Stone figure, it probably says something dirty. I think every time you put like a hidden language in a comic book uh, page, it's always uh, something dirty. One of the things I, I never I don't know. It's not like I really sat around and thought about it until they gave the dates here for these characters. But it mentions his first appearance, of course, which is Action Comics 276, which means only three years separates him and the original Brainiac. I had no idea. I thought there was I thought there was a way longer time difference between the two characters. But I mean, basically, Brainiac Five came along right after Brainiac. I don't know what's going on tonight, but you clearly have a copy of my notes. So, like, word for word, every bit you just had. <laughs> uh, yeah, isn't that crazy? I was blown away by that, too. I was like, whoa, because, you know, Legion of Superheroes, you always think about, you know, it's the 50s and 60s, sure, but Brainiac just seems so far before that. Three years is nothing. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. So, really interesting. By the way, I, I have been um, – well, for, I'll, so, again, art by Chris Sprouse and Al Gordon. The interesting thing here with Chris Sprouse is Chris Sprouse went on to become a the, the – main Legion artist on one of the books, but this is three years before that, so it's kind of interesting. Oh, it's almost like the two Brainiacs. Um, so three years before he ever went on to draw Legion, he was doing these who's who entries, so kind of fitting. Uh, kismet, if you will. Um, I, I keep forgetting to mention the writer's names of these things, folks. Um, this one, the Brainiac 5 entry was written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum. The Brainiac entry was written by Roger Stern, so that's awesome. And Black Racer was written by Mark Wade. I will do my best to remember to say those things, but just that's some of the caliber of people writing these who's who entries. Very impressive. So Brainiac 5 is a direct descendant. It's interesting the, the way they phrase this. He's a direct descendant of Vril Dox II, 
So not the, they're not saying he's a descendant of the original Brainiac, even though he is. Uh, they're saying he's a descendant of Rildox II from the Legion with the Dots series. Um, and uh, they do give, it's sort of interesting here, the origin of the Brainiac name. They say that, uh, let's see, uh, the exact origin of the title Brainiac apparently ties into an era when the planet was ruled by its greatest intellect, who went by the name Brainiac. That's hilarious. That is too funny. The history has gotten everything wrong and mixed up by the 30th century. That cracks me up. So, uh, let's see. He has a 12th level intelligence. I've heard that a million times. I didn't know until I read this entry that humans have a 6th level intelligence. Well, look at that. There's some level of comparison. Brainiac was well known for doing lots of time research. He was in love with Laurel Gand, which, of course, was the, uh, the analog for Supergirl. Uh, now, Brainiac had some of his dark periods, too. There were times where he went freaking insane, and he did horrible things like created Computo or Ultron, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he created another bad guy named o Omega. And uh, now here they're explaining that a lot of it had to do with Glorith, who was a, a sort of a time trapper equivalent, and saying that it was her fault that he went crazy. But he created a lot of good stuff, too, like he created the time bubbles and the force field belt and the Legion flight rings and the anti-lead serum for the Daxamite. So he was, obviously is an amazing inventor. I do like how they mention here his combat training score is the lowest ever accepted by the Legion. <laughs> so poor, poor Brainy. Um, his first appearance, as we, we've already talked about, but at this point in history, the Legion of Supers were during their five-year-later era, and they were on issue 12, which was a very important issue. This was the issue where they've, you know, for 12 issues they've been trotting through this dystopian future where the Legion had fallen apart. Issue 12 was where they, did, where they agreed we're back together. The Legion is reborn. And this, that issue 12 is where the Legion was reborn as a team, which was fantastic. So really nice timing for this. Do you have any, other than your bizarre hatred for the Legion, do you have any real connection to the character? No, I don't really. <laughs> I don't, don't at all. I'm sorry. Okay. Wow. Thanks for your contribution, Rob. Thanks for showing up today. All right. Up next is Chunk. So uh, Chunk is drawn by Greg LaRock and Jose Marzam. And Chunk is the very, 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 very large friend of Wally West Flash. In fact, he is rated at 515 pounds. And uh, Chunk always wore a nice suit with a bow tie, which was cute, and he has glasses. He's an African-American guy. Brilliant, brilliant physicist. And uh, in the drawing here, he's just sitting there in a um, – it looks like an apartment of some sort. Behind him is you know, bookcases and posters of the Flash and Wizard of Oz and all that. So what do you think of this drawing here? That's nice. I mean, it gives it, you know, certainly conveys the bulk uh, of the character. I like the movie posters in the background. You mentioned Wizard of Oz. You see Rocky back there, too, even though it doesn't have the title. Uh, there's a little picture of Flash and stuff. I, I don't, I was reading Flash at this time because mm -hmm. he first appeared in Flash number nine. I just don't remember much from him. He was, he started out as a villain and then became yep. like a, you know, became like a supporting cast kind of character. Um, I like in the insets <laughs> where, where you see all everybody in the and they're in like bikinis and stuff, and everybody is like fit within an inch of a life, and then he's like way in the background, <laughs> like right. he's as big as the rest of them combined. Yeah, it, it's unfortunate, but I mean, they were trying to make a point that even a heavyset guy can be a hero, which was right, which was nice. Right. So he's a master physicist, um, and, and they describe him as a human black hole. Due to the scientific accident, he basically has to absorb 47 times his own weight to keep him from imploding. And he started off as a villain. He had sucked in, you know, jewels and people and all kinds of things into his black hole. Flash got involved. They turned it around. And at this point, uh, Chunk is now working as a uh, removal specialist. He would, people actually pay him to come and remove stuff for him, and they trans he transports it through to this black hole inside of him. And he was a great supporting character. I started reading during the Bill Messner Loeb's era, and Chunk was really, really involved with that era. He was a great friend of Wally. I really liked. I had a lot of affection for this character. Uh, one of the things this does point out. 
that a lot of people forget is that during this era, even after the Mike Barron era, into the Bill Mastrolobes era, Flash was still really, really obnoxious and self-centered, which is unfortunate. I'm glad Wally grew out of that. But uh, there was this, that, you know, before Mark Wade came on board, basically, Wally was a real douche. So, um, let's see. And I've talked about this before in previous episodes. There is no podcast out there that I can find that is covering the Wally West era of the comic books. So, if you guys know of one, please let me know. Would love to listen to it. I love the Wally era. So, and I know there's some that has started and stopped, but I'm talking about currently uh, going on. So, all right. Uh, and now at this point, uh, Chunk. Uh, was appearing again at Flash. They were on issue number 43, and they were only one month away from that TV series that Rob loved so much. So, awesome. That's right. I have to ask, uh, now, is it Chunk, or is it Chunk? <laughs> uh, I believe the uh, the latter is correct, because there is an exclamation point on the front, and as I seem to recall, when we did one of the Who's Who updates, uh, 87 or 88, I don't remember, it also had an exclamation point. So. All right, fair enough. Just yep. trying, to, trying to hammer this all down. Yes, that's correct. Way to get it accurate. Got to get accurate. Up next is an amazing, amazing piece, folks, by John K. Schneider III. I alluded to it in the earlier In Stock Trades entry. It is on Count Vertigo. Wow. He is flying at you covering uh, – well, it, it's really clever the way he's done it. His cape is blocking out the top quarter or, or third of the page uh, in a nice square. Then you've got him coming right at you at dead center. And then surrounding him in the background is this awesome M.C. Escher sort of design. What, what do you think of this one, buddy? It's my favorite piece of the book. Yeah. Uh, I love John K. Snyder. I always have. I think he's a great artist. He reminds me of kind of like a, some weird Russian constructivist kind of style. Hmm. Uh, I, I love – I also love Count Vertigo. I think that's a cool character with a cool power, a cool costume. Uh, I like the design of it. Every, there's an, everything about this I love. I think it's a great marriage of character and concept to artist. Um, I wish John K. Snyder had done more stuff for DC Comics. I think he's just a terrific. I've yet to see anything of his that I haven't liked, and this is, I think, that this is by far my favorite piece in the whole book. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful, folks. Um, and when you get on the backside here, it's, uh, by the way, written by Robert Greenberg. Another thing I'm failing to do, I'm, I'm, this new format has me completely thrown. I'm not mentioning the colored borders around the characters. Uh, in this case, it's black for villain. Uh, and Count Vertigo is, of course, created by Jerry Conway and Trevor Von Eden. So I think he's trying to emulate a lot of the Trevor Von... Because Trevor had a kind of a heavy inking style and probably trying to emulate some of what Trevor had done. So um, let's see. Now, if you don't know Count Vertigo, he was born royalty in this small European country, and they had to flee after the Russians were being after World War II. And he also had to be born with this inner ear defect. And, you know, think about it. Royalty, that's the down to inbreeding, folks. Let's, let's face it. Anyway, he gets this device to help uh, with, his, with his inner ear defect, and he finds out that he can use it to affect others, distorting their equilibrium. So he tries to steal back his family's jewels... Take that for what you want right there, again, with the inbreeding. Uh, he comes up across Black Canary and Green Arrow. Uh, one of the big things about this guy, too, at least at this era during the Suicide Squad era, was he, he suffered from manic uh, – he was a manic depressive and he had major mood swings. And during this era of Suicide Squad, they said that his mood swings were getting worse. And in fact, he helped uh, – he tried to help this coup to help retake his home country and end up battling the Suicide Squad. Really neat character. He was used – wasn't he in that uh, Green Arrow short, the animated short, where they're in an airport? Or I no. think so, yeah. Oh, that well, Merlin? Uh, I think it was Merlin. Green, okay. Count, Count Vertigo was in the Green Arrow miniseries, the mm. one from the the uh, the one by Mike Barr and Trevor Von Eden, which is okay. terrific. It's a terrific story. I do want to mention I love in Powers and Weapons. It says, Count Vertigo was trained in many forms of combat while raised in England. He has not pursued his studies, nor has attempted to supplement his original training. <laughs> uh, he's like, once he got powers, he's like, I'm good. 
I, 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 I don't need to go jogging. I'm fine. I can, right. I can, I can I just do this. I can just do the vertigo stuff. I don't, I don't need to lift weights or anything. That's cool. Well, like he's it. so cocky too. So you know that, yeah. that's what it works. All right. I love this piece so. It's, I love the colors, everything about it. It's one of the best of the entire series. He absolutely is. It is. And John K. Schneider will continue to knock things out of the park throughout this Who's Who series. He's really one of the MVPs of the series. So love it. Love it. Love it. Guarantee you it will be on our image gallery, folks. Uh, so if you wanted to keep up with uh, Count Vertigo, you could check out Suicide Squad number 45, which was on the shelves the same month as this. It was just after they'd finished up the Phoenix Gambit. And we should have mentioned, by the way, his first appearance was in World's Finest Comics number 251 from June, July 1978. All right. Up next is Dead Man. Uh, this is a drawing by Kelly Jones. So this, if you know the traditional Dead Man, this one looks very, very different. He's basically an emaciated skeleton in the Dead Man costume. And the reason why Kelly Jones drew it this way is because he had, uh, about 10 months before this, had done the miniseries Dead Man Love After Death, which was written by Mark Barron uh, with art by Kelly Jones. And in this case, uh, you are, in this case, you're under the ground. You can see like a, a cutaway of the ground. You see the roots of a tree. Dead Man is there. He's got all these vines wrapped around him. And he sort of looks looking into a coffin of, uh, I presume to be a woman, that is buried underneath the ground. What do you think of this, uh, Rob? I like it, um, I, and I like Kelly Jones's work. Obviously, it's very reminiscent of uh, Bernie Wrightson, and I like Bernie yes. Wrightson. The only problem I ever had with this iteration of Dead Man is that, like, just, I always liked Dead Man. I think he's a great character. I liked the, the Boston brand's persona, um, that he was this tortured guy, but he also kind of had a sense of humor. He would like, call people sweetheart and all this other kind. He was kind of a lighthearted character in a way. But this version, like, it looks like it hurts to be dead man. Yeah. Like, it just looks painful. And that, that kind of makes me sad. I don't like the idea that he's a corpse. But, but then, of course, I think they would develop this maybe accidentally a little bit later on for Kingdom Come, where when we see dead man, he's finally just a skeleton. Like, hmm. he, all, all the skin has been eaten away over time, and he is just... Um, a costume surrounding some bones. So there, there's some sort of development uh, there on. And it's a nice drawing. It's certainly unusual the way he's flipped upside down. It's not, it, it's much more of a um, situational piece than sort of a presentation. Like he's, I'm dead man. It's more, it's <laughs> more kind of moody. And I like the logo, the old style, kind of almost like Western-y. I know it it's supposed Western, to be probably yeah. more like a circus, obviously, because he's from the circus. Mm. Um, but I, but I, I like it. I like it. But again, it's like the, the inset. When you see the little picture of him, like his cheeks are all sunken. Like it makes me sad. I don't want Boston Brand looking like that. Right. I um, I am torn. It, it is technically a very nice drawing. I'm not a fan. Uh, it's not that I'm not a fan of the drawing. I just don't like this version of Dead Man. I never, it never appealed to me. I flipped through the book. Kelly Jones is very uh, up and down for me. You know, some of his stuff I love. Some of it I'm like, whoa, man, you took it way too far there, brother. And this is one of those cases where I, I never really liked his design of Dead Man. Now, stepping away from that, you're right. It's a very interestingly drawn piece. It's composed. I mean, it's kind of a, really, really clever the way it's composed with being under the ground and the coffin and all that. So the composition is fantastic. The way it's set up, I'm just not a fan of this version of Dead Man. So it's uh don't mean to take away from it. But if you don't know the history of Dead Man, you should pick up that trade paperback Rob recommended, or I'll tell you a little bit about it. He was a circus aerialist and he was murdered. And he was, uh, then the spirit came to him, Rama Kushna, and she gave him these mystical powers and gave him a mission to maintain the balance between good and evil. Uh, during his mission, he found the, uh, the, the mythical land of Nanda Pombat, and, or Parbat, I'm sorry, and he ended up working side by side with Batman to battle the League of Assassins. Now, then we get into what I believe is the retcon from the 
Kelly Jones miniseries. I can't promise you that. But there's a there's a retcon where you find out Ramakrishna actually had Boston Brand killed. They were responsible for killing him because she needed him to become Dead Man to battle uh, one of her previous agents that had gone bad. So not very nice of uh, of her to do that. So no creator credit. I noticed no uh, mention oh, yeah. of uh, Arnold Drake or anything like that. And I've always thought Dead Man would make an amazing movie. I think the the uh, no pun intended the hook of his uh, of his creation is so good. The idea of him possessing bodies has got such a great visual to it and an idea. I think this would make such a such an amazing movie. And of course, uh, Fred Hembeck once uh, opined that uh, Dead Man would make a great character for in a porno. <laughs> What? He's, Why? He could, he could jump into different bodies right at the exact right moment. Oh, my God. Okay. Anyway, um, wow, I was going to take it to a not dirty place, but I was going to say I disagree with you, shockingly. Uh, I don't think a Dead Man movie would be the way to go. I think he would need to be an ongoing series. Okay, because... well, then, I mean a live-action version. Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess but... But the ability, you know, because it was it was the, sort of the opposite of the fugitive. Rather than being on the run, he was always looking for the man who killed him, and meaning the original stuff. And so you'd have this great ongoing series where he's going, to, you know, it's very 1980s, going from town to town, searching for the man who killed him, and he'd be jumping into different bodies throughout the whole thing, sort of a um, quantum leap sort of thing, where you know he, he looks in the mirror and he sees who he is, but when we see him, it's the actor who ever plays Dead Man. Would it, it could really work. Cool. So, um, you know, at this point, like I said, the, the Dead Man miniseries was 10 months over, so that's really what had been going on with him. If you want more on Dead Man, you can check out our buddy Doug Zawisha. He has a blog, which is it's kind of uh, gotten a little out of date, but he's got some great Dead Man content out there. It's called Tales of My Greatest Strange Adventure, because Doug doesn't believe in short titles. So you check that out. All right, up next is Deadshot's theatrical movie star uh, by Luke McDonald. And on the cover here, you've got Deadshot on the roof of a building. He's got, like, he's propped with one leg up on an air conditioning unit. He's, he's propped his other hand on a wall. Behind him is the air conditioning units, which are clearly not working properly because they're freezing over. And you see the silhouette of Batman's cowl on the brick in front of him. Uh, what do you think of this one, buddy? Not a bit, piece. I'm sure I said this exact same comment when we covered him the last time. I always forget how old a character Deadshot is. He first appeared in Batman number 59, yep. which is now, of course, the version that everybody's familiar with. It was not, is not, didn't first appear in number 59. He actually looked way different, and then he was brought back, I believe, by Englehart and Marshall Rogers, and they kind of like updated him, and that's the version everybody knows. That's the version in the movie. But nevertheless, Batman number 59, like that makes him older than the Riddler. Um, once again, you're reading my notes. Um, the way they explained it was... <laughs> I had your was, wife send them to me. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Um, the way he they explained it was he was arrested, yeah, so that would have been the 1950 appearance, and then he was in jail basically till the 1970s. I mean, he wasn't really in jail for 20 years, but you know, in real-world time, it was 20-plus years till you saw him again. He was basically a one-off guy and never came back till then. And it was, uh, yeah, Marshall Rogers was the one who artistically re-envisioned Deadshot. So, um, you, I see how you cleverly dodged discussing the Luke McDonald drawing on the front, though. Um, it's nice. No, I don't mean it. It's I okay. Mean, so it's, it's, not, it's fine. It's fine. I like Batman's silhouette. He's about to lay a beat down on uh, Deadshot. Uh, the costume is complicated as hell to draw. I can imagine that when I have to draw it from panel to panel, it's probably a giant pain in the ass. But yeah. no, it's, no, I think it's, perfectly, it's a perfectly fine drawing. I, I, I'm not as hot on it. I think it's okay. Um, but given that Deadshot was kind of a big star, I mean, he already had one miniseries of his own. Uh, Suicide Squad had been doing quite well for quite a while. He's kind of a big name at this point. I would, I don't know. It's, it's a little disappointing to me. Now, Luke McDonald was the artist, though, on um, Suicide Squad for a long time, so he's the right person to do it, but just, I don't know, a little disappointed. 
Uh, of course, he's got the black border for villain. And if you read about Deadshot, it's very sad. He had this horrible family life growing up. Um, I don't even want to get into the details of it. It's gross. It's bad. And he ends up with this death wish. And he wants to, he basically, he's ready to die, but he wants to go out in a blaze of glory. And he's super rich, so he decides to become an assassin. It, one of the versions that what they kind of do in years later, they kind of say, this is what would have happened to Bruce Wayne. This could have been what happened to Bruce Wayne. He's like an alternative version of Bruce Wayne, if you will. So that's where it, it, he fits in with Batman really well. We talked about how he gets back out in jail in the 70s. Marshall Rogers updated him. Um, Vincent joins the Suicide Squad, which is perfect for him with his Death Wish. Death Wish. Now they do talk about in here from the the uh, Deadshot miniseries where he he found out he had a son, and uh, it's really it's tragic. The son was kidnapped uh, by the and by this by the mother. It was just absolutely twisted, and the child ends up dying, which I had forgotten, which totally just tore my heart out when I reread that. And um, one of the things I thought was interesting they don't talk about in here how Deadshot doesn't seem to be able to shoot Batman. Like, anytime he comes up against Batman, he doesn't seem to be able to either hit Batman or, 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 or have the courage to pull the trigger. There's some mental block that keeps him from shooting Batman. I'm really surprised they didn't mention it here. So uh, we've already talked about what issue Suicide Squad's on. Go check that out. But you, for more on uh, Deadshot and the Suicide Squad, check out the Task Force X podcast with our buddy Aaron Head Moss. All right, up next, another award-winning entry in the issue. This one's amazing. Uh, is Gorilla Grodd by Art Adams. So freaking good. Gorilla Grodd is there. He's standing there. He's, he's measuring a skull, which happens to have a hole in it, like it's been shot in the head. It uh, looks like a human skull. And in the background is tons of scientific equipment and books and beakers and bubbles and, uh, you know, statues, all kinds of great stuff. And it looks like he's in, I don't know, maybe a church or something because it's got these huge rafters. It is a gorgeous piece. What do you think of this one? Oh, it's great. I mean, it's Art Adams, you know. Geez, yeah, I like I like Grodd with his pincers, like he's mm-hmm. sort of uh, practicing phrenology on this skull, perhaps. <laughs> I like I like the mix of old timey stuff and modern stuff. Uh, we see that you mentioned the little like uh, ape uh, fertility god statue, maybe, mm-hmm. or whatever he's got going on there. Uh, he's got some books. It's it's great, and I love the inset too on the back page of uh, him zapping Flash with one of his mind powers. It's it's super. Art Adams, one of those guys, never fast enough to do a regular series, so you get him to do special things here and there, and uh, this is just terrific. You, you really get the sense of the bulk. The 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 heavy, the heavy shadows are really quite nice on uh, sort of the down planes of uh, of Grodd. It's a really great piece. You know, the interesting thing is Art Adams was the inspiration for a lot of the extreme artists in the 90s. It really was because of all the little fine little detail he would do, you know, the cross hatching and all this stuff. He really was. If you, if you listen to Jim Lee and, and Rob Liefeld and all these folks, they do cite uh, Art Adams as one of their inspirations. So uh, even though we praise him, we don't necessarily praise what came out of his stuff. So, <laughs> He's blameless. Right. So text here is written by Mark Wade, of course. Uh, you've got the villain entry around the edges, black. And uh, it, it, it talks about it's, it's kind of a weird piece because I would say three quarters of the entry is dedicated entirely to the history of Gorilla City rather than Gorilla Grodd. So this tells me that there was a recent retcon of Gorilla City, and they're trying to force it down here. So what it, they talk about how in the mid-19th century, this alien ship crashed into Africa, and this energy that was coming out of the ship was uh, it, it, it was absorbed by nearby gorilla, which caused their evolution to advance very rapidly. And they kept the alien to sort of worship him. Well, the alien wanted to escape. He didn't like this sort of situation. So he, the alien used his powers to bring some humans to the city. Well, Gorilla Grodd at this point saw an opportunity, so he then mentally controlled one of the – this is clever. He mentally controlled one of the humans to shoot and kill the alien. So what this allowed Grodd to do was Grodd was able to sort of 
go up in power because the alien was out of the way. And by the human, by controlling the human to shoot the alien, suddenly the gorillas were terrified of humans. So they became very isolationist. And that, that served Garad's purposes just fine, which was very clever on his part. And uh, that's, that's part of the reason why Gorilla City was hidden for so many years. So, uh, again, that's three quarters of the entry. Very little of it's about Grodd himself, though. <laughs> so, uh, we've already talked about where Flash is at this point. And if, uh, again, we, we need a podcast talking about the Flash comics, of course, you can find lots of talk about Gorilla Grodd on, like, the Flash podcast that covers the TV series and stuff like that. But uh, I, I really want a Wally, Wally West podcast. Have you ever read right. any, ever seen any of the pages of the, the Gorilla Grodd, the, the Gorilla City series that DC commissioned and then they never I, finished the first issue? I did see a few because you and I talked about this. Uh, yeah. I don't know where oh, we talked hysterical. about it. Some, some, it's so funny. Yeah, it's really funny. It was Carmen Infantino, wasn't it? Uh, no, actually, no. Carl Potts, oh. I believe, is one of the artists. I, there's a great moment where Grodd has to hide from some of the other gorillas, and he puts on glasses like Clark Kent, and they're like, oh, that's not Grodd. That's just a guy with glasses on. It's, <laughs> it's so funny. That is awesome. That is brilliant. How did that not make it into Cancel Comics Cavalcade? That would have been I perfect. I don't know. It's great. All right. Uh, up next, folks, is Green Lantern Hal Jordan. It doesn't say Hal Jordan, but it is. It just says simply Green Lantern. But that's our boy Hal. And you've got a full-page shot by uh, Pat Broderick that is also the cover. And at this point, Hal Jordan, Green Lantern, was a mega star because the Green Lantern series uh, volume, I don't know whatever volume it was, but the one that came out in the, in the early 90s was only on issue five, and it was explosively successful coming out of the Emerald Dawn miniseries. So Hal was a big name again. Uh, this is the point in his history where he had the white temples. And forget what you've read about the whole Parallax retcon where Parallax caused his temples to turn white. No, what really was is Hal was just getting older is what it was. So uh, it's Hal flying through space. And Pat Broderick has uh, done a million little uh, planets in the background and stars. I mean, so much detail in the background. It looks great. But it was inked by Bruce Patterson. And uh, I think it's a gorgeous, gorgeous piece. And it was well-deserving the cover. What do you think of it? I I think it's I think it's good. I don't think it's great. I'm, I, I like Pat Broderick. I mean, we've talked, we've waxed his car a bunch of times on the Firestorm episodes of Fire and Water and stuff. Uh, I think the anatomy here is a little wonky. Um, I think the the coloring on the background is like kind of dull. Um, I, I never, and I just was never that big a fan of this iteration of Green Lantern with like where people DC was selectively aging up some of their characters. Um, so I, I think it's fine, but I, I'm not in, like in love with it. Okay, folks, this will be Rob's last episode of the podcast. Um, Finally. Oh, my God, I have so much free time now. <laughs> All right, well, let's just flip this amazing piece over, and we'll talk about the backside. Jeez, OP. Uh, Red Border for Hero, of course. Hal, Harold, Hal Jordan. Um, it, basically, the history here is really a retelling of Emerald Dawn, is mostly what it is. Uh, Emerald Dawn had come out. It was extremely successful. It was the post-crisis retelling of Hal's origin. It went, you know, it didn't sell like Man of Steel, but, I mean, it still sold incredibly well. It was very, very popular. You know, they hit all the highlights you would expect. They talk about, you know, Abin Sir, how he got the ring. They talk about Tomar Ray. This is where the uh, Kilowog gets introduced as Hal's trainer. Uh, they deal with Sinestro a little bit. They talk about the bad guy Legion that he had to fight during the uh, Emerald Dawn, which was this big robot kind of thing made of uh, color yellow. And they talk about how Hal got in trouble for drunk driving, uh, which actually becomes a much bigger thing in Emerald Dawn 2. But Emerald Dawn 2 is still a few months away at this point. Um, but yeah, I mean, you get the rest, you know, you got Hal, in, in a little shot of him in the airplane. You got him getting the ring from Avon Sir. You got him charging his ring, all the kind of stuff you would expect. Again, I really can't reiterate to you guys enough how big Green Lantern was at this point. You know, everyone talks about, oh, Green, you know, Jeff Johns made Green Lantern so popular because, you know, you got all these 
these series. You got Green Lantern, Green Lantern Corps, and you know all these different comics. Folks, it happened in the '90s first. First, there was Emerald Dawn and Emerald Dawn 2. You got this Green Lantern series, which was explosively popular, which spun off a Green Lantern quarterly book. It spun off Green Lantern Mosaic. It spun off Guy Gardner. Uh, all of these. I mean, it, it was kind of a you know a franchise, the Green Lantern franchise at that point. So it, it's happened before, and this was kind of where it kicked it off. So good on you, Hal. I love the insets. I will say I, I wasn't mm-hmm. as complimentary on the main page, but I love the insets, especially the one of him charging his ring. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And then, by the way, I should say it was extremely successful. But then, by like issues forty, it was getting really, 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 really boring. That's why you got Kyle Rayner. So, and which was fantastic too. So, all right. First appearance, uh, showcase number twenty-two, September October nineteen fifty-nine. Wow, he's almost as old as Brainiac. So, all right. Up next is Ice by Adam Hughes. Absolutely adorable. It really it, it walks that line of adorable girl next door and who's cute. And you know, there's a little bit of sexiness in there just because it's Adam Hughes. He can't keep it out of there. So, uh, on the on the issue on the cover here on the the art, whatever. Uh, Ice is sort of cuddling a baby seal, which looks so adorable. And in the background, there are two people who are clearly going to kill and bash the baby seal, and they are frozen solid within a block of ice. Again, Adam Hughes can't go wrong there when he's drawing the ladies. What do you think of this one? Oh, it's it's beautiful. It's fantastic. Uh, I can only hope that the guys that uh, Ice is encasing in ice uh, slowly uh, die of starvation. So it's uh, fantastic. I love it. I love the, how happy the seal looks. It tells you everything about <laughs> ice that you need to know beautiful piece and again as you mentioned it's it's uh, adam hughes can draw obviously adam hughes is the guy you get when you want to draw really sexy women but ice is beautiful and alluring and sweet but it's not a nece- that's not dripping with sexuality either uh, right. so i think it's great and again i love the insets i love uh, fire tickling her and she's laughing and then we see her using her powers it's, it's great and then making ice cubes for the other members of the justice league great piece <laughs> great piece well, absolutely wonderful. Uh, it does have created by credit here. Uh, e. Nelson Bridwell and or Birdwell is it Bridwell. Or, oh, I don't have my glasses here. Oh, Bridwell. Okay, Bridwell, and Ramona yeah. Frayden. I thought it was misspelled. So, <laughs> and Ramona Frayden, of course, from the uh, from the Super Friends number nine in December 1977, which was her first appearance. A lot of people forget that first appeared in Super Friends and yet made it into regular continuity. Now, a lot of this is just a retelling of her Secret Origins issue. Uh, she had they covered on Ryan's Secret Origins podcast, which was fantastic. Uh, the gist of it is uh, the country of Norway was really anxious to join the Global Guardians, and they needed a hero. So they sought out their uh, mythical, legendary, uh, magical ice people that lived in their country they knew of, so eventually they found them. They sent this engineer to go find them. Well, they were this, you know, quiet little isolated community, and this engineer gets there, and he meets them. And, of course, Tora, who is, you know, ice, she was smitten with the engineer, and he talks her into coming off to to see his world, and she left with the engineer. She joins the Global Guardians. Uh, she's there. She's called Ice Maiden. She becomes friends with Green Flame, uh, which didn't actually happen in any of those comics. It was retconned in JLI. She joins the JLI. She changes her name to Ice to go along with her friend Fire. They're just besties. And uh, they, they describe her quite well here. They, she's naive. She's kind of sweet. She's very soft-spoken. But she's powerful. You know, she can generate ice. We're not talking – she can't freeze the in New York Harbor, but she can generate enough ice to stop a moving vehicle, which is – I'm pretty impressed. I can't stop a moving vehicle, so I think that's pretty good. And uh, at this point in Justice League history, she uh, Justice League number 43, or Justice League America number 43, was on the shelves. It was just a few months away from Guy and Ice's relationship developing further. Because if you remember, one of the funny stories was that she and Guy Gardner fell in love. So you got this sweet naive girl with uh, the horrible, horrible, horrible Guy Gardner. They made a great sort of, you know, uh, was it, uh, what's that expression? 
chalk and thanks for your help. I don't, know, I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what you're trying to say. You're coming up with phrases that don't exist. I'm sorry. No, there is. There's a, a, there's a phrase. Someone's going to put it in the comments. It's uh, it when two things are opposite, but they go well together. You know, it's uh, oh, well, chalk and cheese. There it is. Wow. Uh, it's like chalk and cheese. It's a British thing. Just that, oh my God. expand that your horizons, so Rob. Quit being so ethnocentric. Learn about other countries. That like ice. So she's, she's from Norway. Anyway, uh, if you want more on ice, you can certainly check out the Secret Origins podcast where they cover history. Or you can check out the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast, which I hear is pretty darn good. So, All right. Up next I've not is, heard that. Uh, it's because you haven't been invited to be on the show if you haven't noticed. Anyway, uh, up oh, next I've is noticed. Jade. Jade, uh, formerly of Infinity, Inc., by Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway. She's hovering over what looks like a, a volcanic eruption, and she has, cre- she has created a giant drill to relieve the pressure in the volcano. And she has turned real quickly to uh, smile for the paparazzi. So uh, what do you think of this one, buddy? Great piece. Great. Dan Jerkins, Jerry Ordway, King of Wrong with Jerry Ordway inking. I love um, I love the, the little portrait of her, the slightly turned, and then she's looking on the other side. It's just, it's just such a great little face. I always like yeah. this character. I always liked Infinity Inc. I know that they're, I don't know, they're kind of like Mordish characters a little bit, especially some more than others. But I don't know. I always liked all these, these characters, so uh, I have an affection for this. Well, she's super cute. She was always designed to be super, super cute. She's sort of like Ice in the same way of the, the girl next door who's sort of cute but sexy at the same time uh, without being too provocative. Uh, although she does, she is originally from Earth 2. This is the melded universe. So she's part of Earth 1, you know, the main Earth now. But being from Earth 2, of course, she has a boob window, uh, which we had verified by Jerry, Con- uh, Jerry Ordway uh, during our first run of Who's Who. And she is the daughter of Alan Scott and the villain Thorn. Uh, Alan Scott did not know he even had a daughter for many years. They, she, they eventually reunited with Alan. She joined, of course, Infinity Inc. And then uh, at this point, Infinity Inc. was over, but she had an encounter with Superman. Uh, and that's why Dan Jurgens is involved here. She had an encounter with Superman in his book, and then she eventually went on to become an actress again. And that's where she is at this point. She is she's kind of in limbo. I'm not really sure why she's in Who's Who, other than she appeared in Superman in recent months. But uh, that's, that's where she fits in right there. And if you want more on Jade, of course, you can check out this. It's now defunct, but the Tales of the JSA podcast, where they were covering all the old uh, appearances of the JSA characters. I adore this one. She's super cute. And I love that they brought her back as Kyle Rayner's girlfriend. That made me very happy. Great. Thanks for your contribution. Okay. Uh, up next is Cadaver. Uh, with art by Norm freaking Brayfogle. So uh, in this one, uh, the cadaver is, what's his full name? Mor- is it Mortimer, I think it is? Uh, flipping here. By the way, Jade, yes, created Mortimer, by Ray Thomas. Mortim- yes, Mortimer, Mortimer Cadaver. Mortimer Cadaver, uh, created by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Norm Brayfogle. Um, I've been dropping the ball here again. Jade was created by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway, I should have mentioned. Okay, so Mortimer, uh, Mortimer Cadaver, he is climbing out of a coffin here. There's a guy behind him who's completely startled. They're clearly in a basement because you can tell the stone, stone walls and the stairs and the torches. They're in a, a basement full of torture equipment, including guillotines and all kinds of horrible things. Uh, and then um, the, 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 he's... Okay, I don't really get this. He has got what appears to be a Steve Martin arrow going through his head. <laughs> okay. I never read these issues, apparently, with Cadaver in Batman or Detective Comics, whatever. What Do you get this? What's the deal? No, I don't remember this character at all. I think I was reading the, the book at this time, but I just don't, I don't remember him at all. Um, it's, it's funny. We see, I like on the inset, we see the, the, the burning hand that he's got on his forehead because we see how he mm-hmm. gets it there on the inset. And then the third inset, we see him getting shot by the penguin, which doesn't make him seem like the toughest customer in the world. 
Right, right. It, I mean, the deal is they do talk about how he likes to play pranks, okay? So I can only assume the, the Steve Martin arrow – if you don't know what I'm talking about, folks, shame on you. Uh, anyway, I have to assume the Steve Martin arrow is there just to surprise the guy behind him and stun him. They say he liked to hide in coffins and come out just to shock people. I mean, apparently he's got a weird sort of sense of humor. Again, I very rarely am I unable to give you some history on a character, folks. This is one of the rare occasions where I go, I don't know. So uh, hopefully on Nightcast we'll be able to find out a little more about this guy. Anyway, uh, he's apparently very – morbid and sadistic and uh he he was uh, had some dealings with the corrosive man where they were they were partners and then they turned into hated enemies um they were the fighting corrosive, batman the corrosive man is the one who gives him that the, the handprint yes. on his forehead exactly exactly and, and the, then he teamed up with penguin but there was a, a betrayal here the thing about this entry i don't really care for is it's very step by step uh, i don't like the who's who entries where they're like and then this happened and then this happened and this happened. I like the ones that are more like a more like a story bible where they kind of give you a sense for the character. But part of it is because this character hadn't appeared a whole lot and won't really ever appear again. Um, he gets literally a couple of appearances and a couple of issues from this point on to the end of time. They pretty much were done with him. So, um, but again, it's Norm Bra- Norm freaking Brayfogel, so it's pretty good. Um, all right, I'm going to say something that it's not going to go over very well, but it's not my favorite piece. Like. Two times now in a row. Norm, who's an amazing artist, we got the the mud pack last time, and now we're getting cadaver. I'm not blown away by these things. I don't know. No, am I, am I wrong all, here? They all can't be winners. I mean, you know, yeah, it's like some more than others. I like this one just because it has a lot more of a setting. I like the uh, that he's got Edvard Munch's The Scream in the background. I wonder if that's the original. Uh, <laughs> so no, I, it's it's fun. I mean, again, yeah, I don't think it's one of his best ones, but it's it's a fun piece, and it's. It's certainly uh, one of the lesser-known lights of the Batman universe, but, you know, it's okay. All right. Well, folks, keep your ears peeled to the Nightcast for more information on this. Now, I guess I shouldn't complain too much about Norm Brayfogle, because the next one's by Rob Liefeld, folks. Uh, oh, it is, God. <laughs> it is Kestrel from Hawk and Dove, and Kestrel looks a lot like Hawk, except his costume is purple and black, and he is die- and, he's, and I think he's got a ponytail, maybe. Um, or at least he's got ribbons coming off the back of his head, I should say. Anyway, Kestrel is leaping us in traditional Rob Liefeld style. He's got his talons out. He's got these little tiny feet. In the background, you can see another version of Kestrel, which is female. It is drawn by Rob Liefeld, which is appropriate, because Rob drew the Hawk and Dove miniseries where Kestrel was introduced, and really was his breakout book. I mean, that's what led him to, even it wasn't his first art ever, but it was kind of what broke him as far as being uh, in the popular limelight. And of course, uh, Kestrel was created by Bar- Barbara and Carl Kiesel and Rob Liefeld. And the text here is going to be written by Carl Kiesel. But what do you think of the art on Kestrel? I am dying to know. The first uh, panel on the back, which is the close-up of him without his mask, like mm-hmm. that is everything what I hate about Rob Liefeld's artwork. Uh, everybody with this squeaky face! And they don't look human. Their head shapes make no sense. It's just... A, a, I know, I know. It's so easy to pick on Rob Liefeld. He's definitely like like a punching bag, of of a kind of like you know people that are like oh combo guard Rob Liefeld sucks and people don't like him so much because he's so popular. That's a, I'm sure that's a big part of it. I've never liked Rob Liefeld. I've never liked his artwork. Not the man. I don't know the man. I shouldn't say that. I've never liked the artwork. I've never seen a single piece of his I've ever liked. And this continues that tradition. Uh, I actually liked his stuff around this time, uh, specifically his work on New Mutants. Now, he had a really heavy inker at that point, so I think that he really helped kind of uh, rough uh, get some of the rough edges out. 
I mean, I love New Mutants so much that I got a cover, I got one of the covers on a T-shirt that I wore until it just literally fell apart. I mean, I loved his work on New Mutants. After that, there wasn't much I enjoyed. I don't care for this Kestrel picture very much. I did just notice something which I'm disappointed in. Uh, you know, we've got the front page, right, with the big piece of art. And the back side, you get like a, a senior class picture, basically, is what you get of each character right, along with the inset pictures. And the inset, up to this point, as far as I've noticed, the inset senior class picture has always been an original drawing. This is the first time I've noticed where the senior class picture is simply the image from the front taking a snapshot of it. Look at that. They didn't even draw a new Kestrel picture on the back. That bothers me. That, that tells me some shortcuts were taken. I don't like that. So um, here's the deal with Kestrel. Uh, it, it's an interesting idea for a character. You know, they'd revealed that Hawk and Dove were the versions of uh, Order and Chaos. And Kestrel is the living essence of murder and killing. And he was a minion to the lords of chaos. And his mission was to destroy the Hawk and Dove partnership to prove that Order and Chaos cannot work together. And Kestrel can take – Kestrel's more of an, uh, an entity than a person. He takes over different host bodies, and when he takes over the host body, the costume appears. So if he's female, a female. If it's a male, it's a male. And they grow these giant talon fingers, and uh, it requires the Lords of Order to cast a uh, – I'm sorry, of Chaos to cast a spell to make this happen. And one of the interesting things is he can track – because he's always – again, out the style of Hawk and Dove. He can track Hawk, but he cannot track Hank Hall. That's sort of an interesting idea that they came up with the writers uh, to, to sort of track that down. So, again, first appearance, Hawk and Dove miniseries number one. And at this point, the Hawk and Dove ongoing series was on issue number 17. So they were sort of screaming towards the end there because that series will end at issue 28. And I don't know of any Hawk and Dove sort of podcast or anything going on there. But you would think they'll show up somewhere on a podcast soon because, you know, with the, the Titans TV series coming up. Right. Rob has fallen asleep. Okay. Can we up please next. just get to Madame Xanadu? For we are going to Madame Xanadu. All right. We're going to Madame Xanadu by whoa, Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. This is on the very cusp of being one of the best drawings, but I've got a couple issues with it. Uh, it is Madame Xanadu. She is absolutely dropped dead, stunning, gorgeous. You know, she's got her sort of slinky dress on with these giant bat-like, you know, scarvy things hanging off her wrist. She's got her bangles. She's got her earrings and everything. She's got a bunch of creepy demon faces behind her. And she's holding up tarot cards. Great composition. You know, Kevin McGuire, a master of faces. Uh, it's a beautiful drawing, but I have a couple of concerns, but I'll address those. What are your thoughts, Rob? She's got Wolverine's hair, first of all. There's That's that. one of them. Um, <laughs> no, I like the design of this piece. I like the uh, the all the ghostly skulls in the background. Or the, not, not skulls, like the demons and stuff, demon mm -hmm. faces. Um, it's got a nice movement to it. Um, you feel like... Uh, you know, like you can imagine the, the the wind chimes blowing when you open the door to her shop and stuff. Yep. Um, it's a, it's a, no, I think really like this image. I see the hair's a little wonky, um, but I, I like it a lot. And I, and again, I like the um, that uh, the the inset panel on the back is just one whole shot of somebody entering her 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 shop front, enter freely and afraid. Um, I know it mentions her base of operations. Uh, it says a Christie Street storefront. In Greenwich Village, and just mm -hmm. uh, there is a real street called Christie Street. It's spelled differently. The real Christie Street is with an I, not an I, as it here is in the listing, and that is located on Manhattan's Lower East Side and Chinatown. Yeah, that is very interesting and specific. Okay, all right. Uh, you talk about the inset pictures. The inset picture in the back, her hair looks exactly right because Madame Xanadu has very particular looking hair, and in the back, it looks fantastic. So Kevin McGuire definitely nailed that. My, here, here's how I'm going to ruin this for you. You ready? Uh, the front drawing, the one that's you know looks almost amazing. Her necklace never got inked. The amulet is hovering there with no connective chain at all. 
So. See what I'm talking about? Yeah. So. Yeah. That's bothered me since the day this thing came out. Oh. Shit. I, 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 well, I just can't get over it. I'm like, why is that that, that golden thing just hovering on her, in her, above her cleavage? And it's took magic, Shag. It's magic. <laughs> it's supposed to be a necklace, but it's not a necklace. So that always bothered me. But other than that, I mean, again, that and the hair, it's a great looking piece. So Madam Xanadu, uh, the deal is, um, let's see. She was a one of those horror hosts, sort of like Cain and Abel, and they, they spun her out of Doorway to Nightmare, where she was the host. But here, let's face it, she's a lot sexier than Cain and Abel. So she was salvaged first before they ever were, and she appeared in a lot of different places. Uh, this uh, history here covers her origin and talks about how it's very mysterious, and she runs this fortune-telling shop. And the, the, she, the way it works is she cannot intervene. When she tells someone their fortune, she cannot intervene to help them until the clients themselves take personal action, then she can get involved to help them. And she really, really was involved with the Spectre at this point. Uh, the Spectre ongoing series had ended just about a year ago, but she was a supporting character in almost every issue of the Spectre at that point. This is before the Mandrake and, um, Mandrake and Austin series. is the one before that. And um, now, the thing that fascinates me about her is where they go from here, because in more recent years, she had a phenomenal Vertigo series. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Get the trades. If you if you don't want to pony the money up, go to your library and ask them to get it. The, the, the Madame Xanadu Vertigo series was so freaking good. And then when the new 52 relaunched, they stole her from Vertigo, which made all of us mad because they canceled the Madame Xanadu series and stole her for Demon Knights, which, by the way, was also shockingly good. Uh, Demon Knights was a story. Basically, it was like a superhero magical team that took the past. It had Demon. It had uh, Vanal Savage. It had Madame Xanadu. Uh, some other characters I'm forgetting. And it was it was really, really enjoyable. So there's some great Madame Xanadu stories out there. I highly recommend you check out the Vertigo series and the Demon Knights. Well, well worth it. Again, Doorway to Nightmare is her first appearance in January to February 1978. If you want more Madame Xanadu, I'm sure she's going to get covered, or maybe already has, on the Midnight Podcasting Hour uh, here on our own hour. Check it out. I loved her in the Blue Devil Summer Fun special where she makes fun of Phantom Stranger throughout. That's a great, great beat. One of the greatest comics of all time. Blue Devil yeah. Summer Special, annual number one. So much fun. And I, right. I, second, I second your recommendation of the Vertigo series drawn by Amy Reader. That was, oh, you uh, read that? I, yeah, yeah, written by my, Matt Wagner, I believe. That was a really great I think story. you're right. Yeah, it explored her history, basically, yeah. and, and told you and where she, you know, and it covered like centuries or decades at a time. It was really cool. All right, up next is, it's a fun one, folks. It's Manga Con by Joe Phillips. Uh, I love this one. You know, Manga Con, of course, is the crazy salesperson from Justice League International. The, the whole idea is it's basically a play on the home shop, an intergalactic home shopping network. And his character, I don't know if you know this or not, Rob, his character was actually based on Stan Lee, the way Stan Lee speaks uh, and writes, and also uh, combined that with the way Jeanette Kahn was. That's uh, that's where Magna, Magna, Magna Khan came from. And here in the cover, Magna he's... Khan. Magna Khan. not Magna. I keep saying it wrong, don't I? Magna. All right. So he's standing there, you know, very dramatically. He's got his arm raised. He's like, Elrond, let's barter till we drop. And Elrond, the robot's in the foreground taking notes. He says, you're shouting again, my lord, which is fantastic. Uh, it's gorgeously rendered. It is an absolute hoot because there's, you know, word balloons and it's funny. And Elrond's pen top is one of those little, uh, you know, puffy balls with wiggly eyes, which is adorable. Uh, I love this piece. It's gorgeous. What do you think of it? I, it's okay. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I think it's okay. I you don't know. are the worst. Okay, all right. I, weird that there's no creator credit. I would think, that um, considering well, how recently yeah. he was created, that they would have that. But uh, yeah, I I don't know. I did just this character never did a whole lot for me. I'm sorry. 
Well, it's, I'm not asking you about the character. I'm asking you about the drawing. Okay, I don't think the drawing is all that great either. I don't know. There's just something about it just seems very... I don't know. It's just kind of like, eh, it's all right. It's not particularly funny. I don't... I think visually it's just kind of like he's all Okay, shut up, shut up, stop. Forget it, forget it, just shut up. Okay. Anyway, so it's great, folks. Uh, it's drawn by Joe Phillips, who was drawing the Mr. Miracle series at this time. So uh, that's why they got him to draw a manga con. And the uh, – <laughs> I hope you don't mind I shut you down there. Just, you're, you're, I was going to start crying. Uh, the text Can is we talk about Kevin... John K. Snyder again? <laughs> we should. Uh, the text is written by Kevin Dooley, so it's freaking hysterical. I mean, it's really, really funny. I don't know if all of Manga Khan's history had ever been revealed until here. And half of it, you read it, and you're like, I don't even know if I should believe that it's so ridiculous. For example, they talk about this whole uh, this whole culture of bartering. It says they flew by Earth in 1626 and witnessed the purchase of Manhattan for a few beads and trinkets, and so therefore the race dedicated themselves to trading. I, I imagine Kevin Dooley just made that up for this entry, but it's freaking hysterical. It's it's wonderful. I love it. Uh, you, you definitely should check it out. We'll put this on the on the on the the the, the website. I'll also include the backside so you can read the funny jokes. The inset picture has Elrond, a close up of his face. It's got the cluster spaceship, and it's got uh, Guy Gardner yelling at Elrond. The whole idea when they were introduced in Justice League International, they, it was a slow build up. So at first you thought it was going to be like a, a, a Galactus level threat. They even really played it to look like Galactus with the cluster ship and all this and the threat to Earth. And then you find out literally it's a joke about the Home Shopping Network, which was hysterical. And um, people don't get the joke really. Um, they, they're, they're not really funny and they're kind of dead inside so um oh you should like this they do talk about in here on how his parents swap manga con for a copy of binky number one come on that's good i did like yeah. that that's good yeah okay and of course uh, you know, it, the whole, i just by the way i flipped the page and i found out i had more notes uh elrond they talk about how elrond's now a member of the jla uh and MegaCon has a school for melodramatic shouting which is beautiful and they also talk about how he's actually a gaseous creature inside of a suit people forget that because he's always walking around in his suit and here it is folks arlene Lowe, you have been bad until this moment under powers and weapons ladies and gentlemen it says Possessing advanced smarts and no weapons, Elron, which should say Magna Khan there, is more or less a pacifist trained in many and uh, trained in many and very very techniques of running away. Oops. Ah. Uh, uh, very very disappointing, Arlene. Um, someone at home, go ahead and no prize this. Try and figure out a way that I'm wrong. But yeah, I, we Isn't were doing it, good up until that. I think it's interesting that Elron gets all the insets to himself. Well, it's because Elron actually joined the Justice League. At this point, that's why. Just recently, uh, in issue, I think it was 42, which would have been just a month or two ago, Elrond stayed on and has become Maxwell Lord's sort of assistant. He really kind of supplanted Oberon quite a bit. Um, so he became a, a, a very important character. So. Uh, and MangaCon at this point was appearing in Mr. Miracle literally at this time, so that's why uh, Joe Phillips is drawing it. And first appearance is Justice League International number 14, June 1988. All right. Um, again, if you want more on uh, this guy, you should check out the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. Very funny show, I hear. Okay. Up next is, and I have no idea why they're in this book, The New Guardians. Because, folks, they have been gone for over a year. They are no longer a going concern and never will be again. So why, oh, why did they put them in here in Who's Who? I don't know. Uh, it is written by Kevin Dooley. So normally you would think it's funny, but it's not. Art by Joe Staten and Bruce Patterson. And it shows the New Guardians in all their glory in Joe Staten in 1990. So what do you think of it, Rob? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think you need any reason to put the New Guardians in something. They're the New Guardians. No, no, of course. Um, Siskoid must be very excited about this. Yeah, I, this is just one of those, 
I love Joe Staten. I've gone on and on about how much I love Joe Staten. I think Joe Staten, uh, his cartooniness is kind of at the far end of the spectrum here with these characters. Everybody looks kind of weird and distorted. This didn't do a lot for me, although I will say the Invasion show has given me a new appreciation for the characters. I mean, the, the book certainly um, pushed things in certain ways culturally that uh, a lot of other comic series didn't get to do. I think is because these characters were you know, not marquee toy characters or merchandisable characters. So I appreciate the, the book on that end. But yeah, these characters never did anything, anything for me. When you say the Invasion Show, he means First Strike Invasion podcast, our buddy yeah. Siskoid and Boss. Yeah. They have spent a lot of time talking about New Guardians simply because there was crossovers. And they really did have some good insight into the book. I mean, they weren't fans of the book either, but they brought some good insight. And, of course, Michelle Fifay on the JLI podcast spent a lot of time talking about um, where Millennium was going in the New Guardians. So he also brought an interesting perspective to it as well. Yep. Yep. The deal was they were the next step in human evolution. Um and they spun out of Millennium, which was being written by Steve Englehart, if I remember right, for an issue. And then he left and someone else had to come and pick up the ball. So it really it was it was stumbling right from out of the gate from just the behind the scenes drama. Um, and by when the series wrapped up and I didn't know this till I read the Who's Who entry, they introduced these creatures called the Neo Hybrids, uh, which are these look basically like monsters. And at the end, you find out that actually they are the chosen evolution of mankind and their job and the new Guardian's job is actually to teach them. Apparently, that's how that all works. Uh, first appearance is Millennium number 8, 1987. Don't bother ever looking that up, folks. Uh, if you do want more coverage of Millennium, though, Michael Bailey is threatening, I mean promising, to cover Millennium in the near future on his podcast. Might be interesting. Probably won't. All right. I mean, Michael Bailey would be fine, but talking about Millennium. All right. Up next is a gorgeous entry by Richard Case of Rebus from the Doom Patrol. I love, love, love this entry. Rob, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Uh, Rob, anything to add? Uh, it's a very nice piece. It really There is. you go. Very, well done, I like, well, okay, thank you. I'm glad you approve. Uh, no, it's well designed. I like the colors. Uh, I don't know anything about the character because, like I said, I didn't read Doom Patrol at this point. Uh, but, uh, no, it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful image. Yeah, and the gist of it, so you've got, in the background, you've got a bunch of ones and zeros representing binary, also representing male and female. Uh, behind that, you've also got this vertical white column right down sort of the left-hand side. And that was sort of, uh, if I remember right, I want to say Dave McKean used some of that on some of the Doom, uh, Doom Patrol covers. If not, then maybe it's just in the who's who, but I've seen that sort of design technique there before. You've got the name Rebus, and then in the behind it, you've got a shadow of the name backwards, showing you the the... The, the two par parallels of what Rebus represents. And the foreground you've got, which essentially with the old negative man, the guy wrapped up in bandages, except here uh, they've got a giant trench coat on and a big scarf and these crazy sunglasses. And bursting out of them is the negative man energy covered with lots and lots of green because it's the 90s. Uh, it's a gorgeous image by Richard Case. It's, I love it. Now, here's the deal with Rebus. Rebus was essentially the next evolution of Negative Man. What happened was Larry Trainer lost the Negative Man creature to uh, Negative Woman. Then she loses the creature. He ends up getting it back. But what you find out is that the energy creature itself had its own mind, had its own thoughts, and had always intended to be the blending of a man and a woman. So this Negative Man is sort of the next generation version where it's uh, Larry Trainer and his female doctor blended into one body with one psyche. So Rebus is actually the blending of man and woman. And you can see here when he's got his jacket pulled down, you can see he's got some small breasts there, which is supposed to represent a half-step between a man and a woman. 
And uh, very cold, very detached, not a very uh, humorous being at all, very, very, you know, stepped uh, one step away from humanity. A lot of gender issues, though. Sort of interesting that you know, all the gender pronouns and stuff is such an issue nowadays, but 20 years ago, they are 25, 28 years ago, whatever it is, they were dealing with it already in Doom Patrol because uh, it was referred to as her, H I R, was the gender preferred for Rebus. Uh, had the powers of flight. Tell, now, the energy creature was very powerful. could come out of the body, do a bunch of damage. But Rebus themselves had the power of flight, telekinesis, and had sort of a future vision. So, really interesting character. You know, mysterious. You didn't know quite what to think about him, but it was also very powerful and badass. Uh, really, really enjoyed this in, Do- in Graham Morrison's Doom Patrol run. Now, at this point, Doom Patrol was on issue 37, so they're about 18 months in Graham Morrison's amazing run. And at this point, Flex Metallo had just introduced. So that's sort of a signpost for you old Doom Patrol readers. And if you want more information on Rebus, you should check out the Waiting for Doom podcast with our buddies Paul and Mike. I wonder if we'll see Rebus in the Doom Patrol TV show. I imagine they'll go with Negative Man rather than Rebus, but man, that would be cool. It's it's a deep character. really is. Makes you think. Okay. Uh, Up next is Reap Daggle from Legion of Superheroes. In other words, it's Chameleon Boy, but it doesn't say that on the front there because this is, uh, you know, 5YL era. So art here is by... um, Tom Artis and Al Gordon. And Tom Artis really didn't have any connection to the Legion, but he did come in to do occasional Who's Who entries. And it is Chameleon Boy standing there all proud and smiling with a little bit of, like, Keith Giffen shadows and and messiness and stuff. But then uh, he's transforming into a giant bull running at you. So uh, what do you think of this cover, Rob? I think it's image, not cover. Uh, I think it's, it's fine. It's fine. I don't. I don't have any. Gra- I, don't, I think it's kind of visually. It's kind of kind of dull looking. Um, I yeah, don't know. I, I guess he's. I guess they. None of them had their costumes, so he looks like he's in like a hospital scrubs or something. Right, so, right. Um, and it's funny on the back. He has so much history that he only gets two little inset panels. Wow. Once again, reading my notes. Um, <laughs> uh, now I think that's because Tom and Mary Beerbaum did the writing, and they're fairly verbose. So I think that's why you get so much text here. Uh, but let's see. So originally Chameleon Boy. Um, I love how all his stats are variable. You know, height variable, weight variable, all that business. I agree. By the way, the cover is really kind of boring. So image, not cover. Uh, just go with what I'm saying. I don't want to deal with this. Anyway, um, let's see. He's the son of R.J. Brand, who's the richest man in the galaxy and founder of the Legion. Gets much more confusing, though, because R.J. Brand himself was a Durlin, just like uh, Chameleon Boy, actually from the 20th century, from the Legion with the dots, and this this R.J. Brand was transported to the 30th century, where he assumed human form became R.J. Brand. Then years later, uh, he has a son, We find, and, and Chameleon Boy doesn't even know he's the son of R.J. Brand, finds out much, much later in a retcon, uh, but he was invited to join the Legion, and part of it was to help ease the resentment people felt towards the Durlin race. The shapeshifters, people didn't trust him. He became a key member of the Legion, and uh, he was originally a very shy and reserved, but eventually grew into his position of being relaxed and confident and funny. He's also head of the espionage squad, which is a pretty cool sort of subgroup of the Legion. Everyone loves that. And again, he had this long ordeal with his father, and we already talked a little about that. And he, at this point, he is helping to rebuild the Legion during the 5YL era. And again, uh, Legion number 12 is on the shelves, so the Legion had just been reborn. It's beautiful. First appearance, Action Comics number 267, so August 1960. Hmm. Up next is Silver Swan. I can't tell. That's what I'm trying to say. Uh, written by Mark Wade, art by Jill Thompson and George Perez. She is this gorgeous, 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 sexy, white-haired woman, basically wearing lingerie with giant feathered wings, kind of like Angel from the X-Men, uh, except with tail feathers as well. And she is flying in front of, behind her is this incredibly detailed sort of a, a, a machine of a science-y type stuff. And there's clouds and stuff there. What do you think of this one, Rob? 
I like Jill Thompson. I like George Perez. I don't know if I like them together. Really? Okay. Yeah. Explain. I don't know if this totally. I just don't know if this totally works for me. I, the original entry that they did in Who's Who, the one by Bill Sienkiewicz, I thought was terrific. Yeah. Uh, I kind of like this character. I think it's Wonder Woman needs more of villains of her own. It can't just be Cheetah and Doctor <laughs> Psycho. Um, so I always like this character. I just think I don't know. I, I again, I think this is one of those things where it's like. Two things I like together just don't necessarily work. I just think it's a fun, it's an okay image. I'm just not uh, like in love with it. Um, the the middle panel where you see her all desiccated is pretty uh, nasty. We see her using her powers, which isn't bad, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's just fine. Okay, well, for me, you know, being a pig, it's a girl in lingerie and she's hot, so I kind of like that. But um, <laughs> that sound you hear is another one star review for the Who's Who podcast. <laughs> It's right there in the name, folks. Irredeemable. You knew what you were getting when you walked in the door. Anyway, uh, it's a couple things, though. Like, um, Jill Thompson really – I guess I didn't know Jill Thompson during the era where she drew normal because Jill Thompson's art really goes crazy. Yeah, you know, once you get later into the '90s, it's really bizarre. You know, like the character Delirium on uh, Sandman really becomes sort of the way she draws later, at least to the, in my experience. So seeing her much more controlled like this is different for me. But I'm I'm pretty pleased with the image. I like it. So you know, um, let's see what else. So here's the big thing that bothered me, and we dealt with this last time. She was covered in one of the updates. She was in one of the Who's Who updates, um, or maybe it was the main Who's Who. Either way, the issue we brought up last time we'll bring up again. It says first appearance, Wonder Woman second series, number 15, April 1988. This is not the first Silver Swan. This is the second one. Why is there no historical appearance? Now, to be fair, it was a different identity. It wasn't Valerie Boudry or whatever her name is. It was a different lady. Um, But still, there's a pre-crisis version of Silver Swan. I don't understand why there's no reference or mention of her at all. It's very strange. All right. So her history is uh, her parents were exposed to this horrible radiation. So her their child was born horribly disfigured, uh, and she had these sonic powers. And they conducted further experiments on her, which made her incredibly beautiful. And she was manipulated because she, you know, again, growing up horrifying looking, she had you know she's sort of emotional, a bit of a wreck. And she was convinced to commit all these crimes. She eventually turns to the side of good, which is great. And uh, her first appearance, as I said, was issue 15, but they're on Wonder Woman number 47 at this point, and uh, Silver Swan had appeared just about three months before this, so there's a lot of, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened in this entry, so... Um, and if you want more in Silver Swan, uh, which does have a black border, I guess it could have been red for hero, I suppose, or supporting character. I don't know. Uh, you should check out the Diana Prince Wonder Woman podcast. I'm not sure if Frank will touch on Silver Swan or not, but you know what? It's it's uh, the Silver Age version might be in his uh, in his area. Who knows? All right, up next is Sinbad. Um, the art by Kurt Swan and Dennis Janke. Sinbad is this young uh, Arabic boy, uh, probably in his early teens, and he is standing there and he looks uh, like kind of heroically posed, and he's blasting Superman. Superman's in the sky taking a big, severe hit. This is a weird character. Um, it's very much a forgotten character. When people think about Superman in the old days, they don't think about Sinbad. Uh, Rob, specifically, what do you think of the art here? Uh, really? Yeah, it's all right. I don't want I mean, to say the, anything mean. I get Chris Franklin all upset, so we'll just. Yeah. I'm fine with it, other than Superman's chest. It's like the muscles there are so weird, and and I, I gotta wonder maybe that was Dennis Janke messing up Kurt Swan because Kurt Swan can draw a person. So I don't know what's happening there. I think it's fine. I, I love the city in the background. I love. I think Sinbad looks great with his big old sneakers. I think he's fine. Now here's the weird thing about Sinbad, is that this character, his first appearance, is this same month this Who's Who entry comes out. 
that I don't know that that's ever happened. I can't think of another instance where that happened with Who's Who. Uh, so he just appeared in Superman number 48, which is his first appearance. He also he had a couple other appearances the same month in some of the various Superman books where he was fighting Sinbad. Um, the, the gist is, again, as I told you, he's a, small, he's a young Arabic kid. He lives in a metropolis in an area called Little Karak. His family runs a local grocery store. He has a, a low-level telekinesis, but he ends up getting this prototype belt that heightens his powers that Lex Luthor who actually had attempted to steal. So the kid's got this belt that Lex wanted, and it boosts his metahuman abilities to really insane levels. Like, I mean, he could take on Superman. Well, eventually, after a couple of, event- couple of incidences, the, the belt burns out, which returns him to low power levels, and that's it. I mean, this guy barely ever appeared again. He never became an ongoing you know, character of notice, but to get appear in Who's Who the same month you first appear, that's pretty, pretty you know, um, big invitation. I guess they had high hopes for Sinbad. I think they did. Maybe because the comedian was big at the time, maybe? I don't know. Um, For more on this character, you should check out From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Up next is Speedy by Tom Grummet and Al Vey. Tom Grummet and Al Vey could do no wrong in this time. It is a wonderful picture of Speedy. He's running across a rooftop in his yellow and red outfit. He's got his yellow bow. uh, He's got, oddly enough, green arrows. You think he would have changed those up for red, but whatever. Uh, What do you think of this image here? Oh, it's a great piece. I like it. The pose is great. The, the anatomy is great. It kind of reminds me, the rooftop that he's on reminds me of that image, that classic image of Batman and Robin on the rooftop that Carmen Infantino and Murphy Anderson drew that you saw in all the merchandise and stuff where Batman has like his cape up to his head. It's like, it's like Batman and Robin just took off and Speedy's right behind them or something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's, it's great. I think the logo's kind of boring. We haven't talked about the logos too much uh, on the, in this series so far. Um, it's kind of a boring logo. It's just sort of a typeset thing, but I don't know. I, I dig it. I like this character. I had the Mego doll, which was very exciting, although it was easy to lose all the accoutrement. But uh, no, I, I dig it. It's, I think it's good. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tom Grummet. You talk about he's been underrated. I don't think he was underrated in 1990 when this came out. I think he's definitely underrated nowadays. People have forgot, sort of forgotten him. But he, he sort of, to me, is always it was like a John Byrne of the 90s, meaning you know, John Byrne in the 80s could draw a character, and the character always looked great. You know, it was always you could always tell it was Byrne, but the character looked great. Well, in the '90s, you could always tell it was a Grummet drawing, but it always looked great. So I I love this era. I always want to take the uh, Tom Grummet Titans uh, entries from Who's Who and line them up to see if they sort of all fit like they're all in one plane because sometimes they're all on rocks and you're like, do those rocks fit up with the other rocks? They don't, but always makes me want to try that. So the deal here with Speedy, uh, Roy Harper, unfortunate origin, most of you probably know it. Uh, he was an orphan. He was raised by these Native Americans. He was an archer. He, was, he idolized Green Arrow. They set up this archery contest to be judged by Green Arrow. It's a really ridiculously, overly complex way he became Green Arrow sidekick, whatever. Anyway, he ends up becoming um, the sidekick. And then Green Arrow does exactly what you would expect Oliver Queen to do. He ignores his son, his adopted son, basically, or his adopted ward. And then Speedy eventually turns to drugs, specifically heroin. Uh, then he, he shakes that off. He becomes sort of a champion for reformed drug addicts. And he ends up involved in sort of a government, shady government agency. It's sort of like the FBI, but it's the, uh, I think the CBI. He get, hooks up on one adventure with Cheshire. And by hook up, I mean he hooks up. And they have a daughter together named Leanne, or Leon, L-I-A-N. And at this point, Leanne is living with Roy, and he's raising her. He's a single dad raising a young girl, which I think is an awesome thing to have in a comic. It's such a great role model for people. And nothing, nothing ever, ever bad happened to Leanne. So that's how that that ends. Um, experience was, of course, more fun comics number seventy three, which is nineteen forty one. More fun comics number seventy three, but Rob, what? That's awful close to something else, right? Uh, it would be the exact same first appearance as Aquaman. Oh, 
imagine that. So green, you know, actually, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize Green Arrow started with Speedy. So interesting. Okay, yep, I thought they Speedy all, they all later. first appeared in the same comic. Amazing, absolutely amazing. So at this point, folks, uh, in the Teen Titans lore, they are on the shelves this month is New Teen Titans number 70, which in and of itself is not that important. But next month is New Teen Titans number 71, the beginning of the Titans hunt, which is one of the greatest eras of, uh, uh, of Teen Titans history after you get to pass, like, you know, the um, uh, uh, Marv Wolfman, George Perez era. It is absolutely fantastic, and so uh, I think it's exciting, very exciting. For more on Speedy, you can check out the Titan of the Defense podcast, or our buddy Tom Pan Reese has the Pop Culture Affidavit blog where he's talked a lot about his history with the Legion. I'm not the Legion. I'm sorry. Uh, the Teen Titans. I'm looking ahead because the next entry is about Legion of Superheroes. In fact, it's got the Legion of Superheroes logo, uh, and it's a, it's about Spider Girl. Spider Girl, Spider Girl. She can do what a spider can. No, we're not talking about May Parker. We are talking about the character of I don't know her name off the top of my head. I'm about how awesome am I? Awesome am I? Souza Paka. Anyway, art by Keith Giffen and Al Gordon. So it looks very much in the era of the 5YL. She has got sort of like hair like Medusa from the Inhuman. She's got crazy long hair, and she can use it to sort of prehensile. She's got in a very uh, 5YL sort of costume with vests and pouches and <laughs> all kinds of lots of busy lines. She's got a little bit of spider webbing on her costume, and it's got sort of a, a pale green on there. What do you think of this image, Rob? Uh... Uh, <laughs> you don't have anything nice to say today besides John K. Schneider the third, do you? Well, I was very complimenting on Speedy, just one entry ago. What the hell are you talking about? I don't listen to most of what you uh, No, I know you don't. Yeah, no, I had no idea this character dated back as far as back as she did. Adventure Comics 323, 1964. <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is a pretty rough image. Uh, I don't know. It, it's a redhead. You haven't said whether she's hot or not, so I think this is this is testing your, your limits here. Um, I like the inset of just like it's you just see half her face and then there's all the red hair doing the peekaboo thing. I like that, but uh, yeah, the main image I'm I'm not uh, I'm not all that thrilled with. <laughs> well, I will say she's hot. Uh, first of all, as a, as a redhead, uh, and while well, the drawing itself is not all that flattering, Spider Girl is uh, very sexually provocative. She, in some ways, she's kind of like Black Cat. Now, she has a border of villain here, folks, but she's not always a villain. Um, I, I use the reference of Black Cat, meaning from Spider-Man, you know, who's she, she's a bad guy for the thrill of it, but sometimes helps the bad guys, and also very sexually charged, you know, a very sexually charged character. So that sort of describes Spider-Girl. Girl. She, she did start off as a villain. Um, she, she actually... Um, she Well, she was experimented on, uh, and that's where she got her powers from, to become part of this matriarchal revolution. She, she got out of there. She ended up applying for membership of the Legion of Superheroes. She got rejected, unfortunately. So she ended up joining the Legion of Supervillains, mainly for fun. And she got involved with the, with the leader, Cosmic King, and I mean involved, and also became addicted to drugs. So she ended up going to prison. She shook those bad habits, and then she sort of reformed, and now she is still out to have fun and annoy people. But she ends up actually joining the Legion as part of their team. And here's the thing that's sort of weird to me is um, – and I need Ange, Dr. Ange, paging Dr. Ange, paging Dr. Ange. Um, I need you to correct me if I'm wrong here. As I mentioned, Legion of Superheroes is on issue number 12. In the five-year la later era, I don't think that Spider-Girl even shows up for an entire year later. So even though she's here in a 5YL costume, I don't think we see her. Until much, much later, like uh, in the issue 30s or 20s of the uh, 5YL era. So this is sort of like a peak to what could happen in the future. So that, again, maybe I'm wrong here, but Ange, you know, let me know one way or another. So I thought that was very weird because normally you only get a who's who entry if it's contemporary, right? 
not not what they're planning to do. Anyway, in the back, you also get the inset of her in her old costume, which is basically just a green leotard with some spider webbing on it. And uh, uh, if you want more on um, Spider-Girl, of course, you know, it's written by, by the way, Tom and Mary Beerbaum, so it's very verbose again. And you should check out the Legion of Super Bloggers for more information. Then you get to just the, the, the back cover, folks. That's all the entries. The back cover is a black and white stat of Wonder Woman drawn by George Perez, and it says next issue. So we'll talk more about that next time. Woof. So, Rob, going to put you on the spot. What were your favorite entries of this issue? Uh, well, definitely Count Vertigo. Like that Agreed. is by far the best one, I would say. I really liked Brainiac. Uh, I really, I kind of liked Dead Man. I liked Gorilla Grodd. I liked Ice. Uh, and I, I met him Xanadu, I would say. Those are my favorites. Madam Xander. Oh, okay. All right, my favorites are definitely Count Vertigo, Gorilla Grodd, and Rebus. I think those are the best ones in the book. Then the the second tier of really great ones, I think, are Brainiac, Ice, Green Lantern, I like, uh, Manga Khan, on you, Silver Swan, on you, and Speedy. Those are the ones I'm the most impressed with. All right, well, folks, we are going to take a podcast promo break, and when we come back, we are going to cover your listener feedback from Who's Who in the DC Universe, number two. Before we get to Superman 2, I have a few ideas for some special episodes we could do. Lay them on me. How about we take a look at some of the other films the cast and crew of Superman made after their 1978 triumph? Great idea. You know what we should start with? Inside Moves, the terrific comedy drama Richard Donner directed in 1980. Sounds cool. Do you think we should bring a guest on to talk about it? Absolutely. And there's only one person we should get. Hey, hi out there. I am Richard Donner, but you can call me Dick. And you're listening to Superman Movie Minute? Is that right? Did I do it right? That's right. On Monday, May 28th, Superman Movie Minute returns with a special episode taking a look at the underseen Richard Donner movie, Inside Moves. And our special guest will be Richard Donner. We can't believe it either. Check out Superman Movie Minute, May 28th, 2018. Only on fireandwaterpodcast.com. In America versus Superman. Batman versus Wolverine. What is the best superhero movie from Marvel or DC? We've all wondered at one point or another. We aim to figure out the answer. Infinity War versus Civil War. The Dark Knight versus Superman 2. Coming in June 2018, it's Marvel DC Superhero Film Bracket for live action movies. That's right. 64 films from the big two comic companies go head-to-head in this bracket showdown. Black Panther vs. Wonder Woman. 
Guardians of the Galaxy vs. Batman from 1966. And you can play along. The winner with the most correct matchup results will win Fire & Water merchandise. Visit our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com, and find the bracket under the show called FW Presents. Batman and Robin versus Spider-Man 3? Iron Man 3 versus Steel? Batman versus Superman? Why did you say that name? Good luck to those who enter, and may the best live-action superhero movie win. and we're going to cover your listener feedback from Who's Who in the DC Universe number two in a segment we'd like to call Who's Who, How's and Why's, which we stole from the previous iteration of Who's Who. So thank you for that. First up, we're going to touch on some iTunes reviews, which are absolutely wonderful, folks. I can't tell you how much we appreciate these. They really help raise the profile of the show. They help people find the podcast, which helps this community grow. So please, please continue to leave iTunes reviews on the Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. We would love, love for you to do that. All right, first up is Tim Price, who, by the way, is my buddy from the JLI podcast. Tim writes, find the joy. He says, are you a DC superhero fan? Do these newfangled podcast contraptions confound and stymie you? Then the Who's Who podcast is for you. Back in the 90s, the internet was in its infancy, and learning the history about characters required finding individual issues. Until Who's Who. Shag and Rob continue the review, exploration, and love fest of the writing, artwork, and characters in this unique publication into the 90s Loose Leaf editions. Truly a product of its time that would not be published today in the Google's culture. The hosts bring endless joy, gripes, and humor for an entertaining ride so grab a binder and join the fun oh thank you tim i appreciate that and rob did you hear how he described the loose leaf edition sounds like somebody really loves a loose leaf maybe you could find some love in your heart for it too well he mentions bringing the gripes i bring the gripes i mean that's that's part of the show (laughs) there you go that that's that's what we should change your name to bringing the gripes kelly that's right uh we got a uh, review from alex osias he says come home to who's who Like a Grand Central Station for DC fandom. Love that reference. Thank you, Alex. This podcast (laughs) pulls together not only the characters, locations, and gear from all corners of the DC universe, but also some of the most informed, outspoken, and geeky podcast fans from around the world. True that. Hosted by the Irredeemable Shag and the refined Rob Kelly. I'm like a wine. This show is sure to evoke (laughs) nostalgia, joy, and the occasional nerd fight. That's so true. Thank you, Alex. Awesome. Please note that in both of those reviews, um, if Shag was mentioned first and then Rob Kelly, <clears throat> just, you know, thought it, thought it might be worth mentioning. All right. Up next is Sean Ross, our buddy who this episode is dedicated to uh, from the Pulp the Pixel Podcast Network. Hope you're enjoying your business trip. And Sean does a podcast called uh, – well, he does several of them the Pulp the Pixel. But one of my personal favorites is Marvel Secret Wars and Beyond. You should definitely check that out. So Sean writes, this show is a tour de force. Rob and his special friend – what? Oh, my gosh. All right. Here, Rob and his special friend cover the seminal DC series Who's Who in all its glory. After decades of hinting about it, they finally arrived at the amazing Loose Leaf edition. <laughs> Join them as... Right. Join them as they dive into the beloved period of DC history. Thanks, guys, for bringing some real joy to a heavy world. Now, you know, taking a step back, did, did I describe Sean as my buddy? Because I really think I must have misspoken here being called his special – Rob's special friend. In fact, you know what? That Marvel Superheroes podcast I just talked about, guys, they have already jumped the shark because they're done with Secret Wars. They're on to Secret Wars 2 now. Okay? Yeah, uh-huh. You remember that one? So, And really, Greg Arujo and Dr. G are the real stars of that show. Anyway, so yeah, Sean, have fun with Secret Wars 2 issue number four where your protagonist goes all sexual predator on Dazzler for like a whole freaking issue. Thanks a lot, Sean. Dedicated to you. 
All right, folks, uh, we're going to pull your feedback from who's who number two. Uh, mostly we're going to be hitting our website comments, the emails, Facebook, Twitter. Now, we don't have time to read everything because you guys were extremely ver verbose. As I said, 84 comments, which is unbelievable. Thank you so much. Keep them coming because even if we don't read all your comments on the air, the amount of uh, back and forth between you guys is wonderful to see. It really is building that community. So um, if you want all of your stuff read, that's where you leave the iTunes review. We'll read every comment you wrote. But here we're going to just be cherry picking. Rob, you want to start us off? <laughs> I just want to mention that if you totaled up all the comments left on all 65 episodes of Pod Dylan, you would not get to 84 comments. So that's <laughs> <laughs> So uh, anyway, yeah, we got a comment from Ryan Daly, who, of course, is part of our network. Um, he goes into a very long dissertation about the height of Booster Gold, comparing him, comparing him to various quarterbacks of the 21st, 20th and 21st century. He mentions, as you said, though, that bit of character trivia never made it to McGuire or Templeton's desk. Because, yes, as we've seen, when he's drawn in group shots, he's not towering over the rest of his uh, fellow JLAers. He also mentions uh, I Vampire, and he says, Had fate taken a different turn, episode 16 of Midnight the Podcasting Hour would have featured me and my wife Angela covering the first chapter of the I Vampire saga. As much as Shag hated vampires in the 1990s, Angie loved them. We had the entire episode prepped and ready to record on the night of July 10th, 2017. Then my son went and got himself born that day. The new plan is to cover that story as part of an all-vampire special episode later this year, perhaps for Halloween. And then he mentions, as consolations go, Rob covered the Curse of Ozzy and Mary in episode 16, and that isn't bad. <laughs> All right. They heard from our buddy Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey 2 podcast. Uh, Michael wrote about Maxima. He says, I like this character from the start. She was introduced during the early days of George Perez on Action Comics, and that run was very exciting to the 13 or 14-year-old me. It didn't hurt that Maxima was an extremely hot redhead. But Yes, Mike, she was. Uh, and, but I also like the idea that she wasn't evil, but just worked from a different playbook. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, he also mentions Brett Breeding. Brett Breeding is an amazing anchor. True that. Absolutely. Then, uh, then Mike goes on to talk about the Flash. He goes, "I will respectfully disagree with Shag about Greg LaRock. I love his run on the Flash, and I will go as far to say that he is my favorite Flash artist of all time. His final storyline, which was the return of Barry Allen, was epic, and I thought that uh, while there was some great artists after him, they never got to me like LaRock did." Wow. Now that's saying a lot, folks, because, I mean, there's some amazing artists on Flash. I mean, Mike Waringo was on there. I mean, just really, really stellar folks that made Flash their own. Uh, now, I will give you credit, Mike. I forgot that LaRock was still drawing during the Return of Barry Allen saga, and that is very nicely rendered. So maybe I'm uh, selling uh, LaRock short. I don't know. Maybe I'm conflating him with uh, the earlier Jackson Joe's uh, guy stuff. I don't know. Hmm. All right. Then Mike goes on about Starman, my Will Payton one. He goes, love me some Will, love me some Will Payton. I have never quite forgiven James Robinson for what he did to Will's backstory, but the rest of that series was so amazing that I overlook it. And he talked about how he's going to be selling off his collection. And he goes, this may be one of the few DC series I keep during the great sell-off. Yes, folks, that's how good the Starman series is. And he says, to answer Shang's question about who came up with the idea of Lex as a billionaire industrialist first, technically it was Elliot S. Magnan in his novel Miracle Monday, which was published in 1981. Comic book-wise, uh, Marv Wolfman did have Lex as the owner of a company um, first, but as you said, it ended up being Vandal Savage until after the crisis. While Wolfman may have pitched the idea of LexCorp in the comics, it was Byrne and Stern who really cemented the idea. Byrne and Stern. I don't think I've ever realized it was Ron. Hmm. Then we heard from our buddy Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin. He goes, so I'm wondering, why is the Flash flying? Maybe Shia can help answer that. 
Uh, I'm assuming that's part of the April Fool's Day jokes. Thank you so much, Adam. He's not run- flying. He's just running really fast. Flying people. Uh, we got a comment from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast in DC OCD and the man who deserves the credit slash blame for the JLMA crossover this year. Uh, he says, new game. Take a drink every time Sag, Shag says, check out the backside. <laughs> Shag, does love, I mean, Shag does love his juicy doubles. That's true. That's true. And I made sure to say it a lot this episode. So I do like that you called me Sag, sort of a mixture of Shag and Sad Sack. So anyway, uh, we heard from our buddy Chuck Coletta. He goes, I never read the original I Vampire, but the new 52 series was surprisingly good. Well worth a reading. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of that repeated. Huh? That, that yeah, you, a lot of people really said nice things about that, I, that new 52 run. They really did. Uh, then we heard from our buddy Dallas Frank from the World Spine Podcast Network, including the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. Now, if you guys know Frank, Frank likes to leave a lot of comments. And this time, uh, I think he was feeling a little lazy. I mean, he only wrote 2,753 words this time. Last time, he wrote over 1,000. I mean, way to phone it in, Frank. Jeez. Okay. So we're just going to cherry pick bits and pieces of what Frank wrote here. Uh, Frank goes on to talk about Tom Grummet, the one that, the, the artist that Rob and I praised earlier. He says, Tom Grummet is one of my favorite Chromium Age artists, though uh, depending on his inker, uh, Grummet is often softer and rounded and less detailed without without the right embellisher, which is fine for heroes like Robin and Superboy. The incredible Al They was the Terry Austin's John Byrne, which I guess would make Doug Hazelwood his Carl Kiesel. Uh, and those pairing are my preferred Grummet delivery system. <laughs> yes, Alve over uh, Tom Grummet is amazing. And I believe we saw this issue. I want to say Alve into, I hope I'm not wrong, uh, that speedy piece. Yes, he did. Then he goes on to talk about Tom Lyle, another one of my favorite artists. Because Tom Lyle was one of those, oh, that guy, who were the Don Perlins and Al Kupperbergs of the bedazzled 90s. It's not necessarily a criticism, since I value these Clydesdales of comic storytelling more and more as I get older, but they never set the heart racing. You know, that's not nice. I like Tom Lyle quite a bit. Then he goes on to talk about Dr. Polaris. He says, Dr. Polaris has a giant horseshoe magnet going through his head. Supervillain open mic night. <laughs> Polaris isn't cosmic enough to work the runway wearing Galactus's couture. <laughs> I think I pronounced that wrong, too. Uh, let's see. Then he talks about the Teen Titans. Because, you know, we were talking about uh, Flamebird in the last issue. And we couldn't figure out why she was there. We talked a little about Titans West. And he says, I believe Titans West were back in development around the time of the early Titans hunt. And Rob Liefeld may have even been involved, as he's often noted Image Comics' version of Youngblood was a mashup of his aborted 1987 Megaton series and an abandoned Titans expansion team involving Speedy and Joker's daughter. I didn't realize that about Youngblood. It explains a lot. Then, let's see, we talked about Hawkman, because you know, we talked quite a bit about Hawkman. You and I argued about Hawkman specifically last time, and the reselling of his origin in Hawkworld. He goes, far worse than all the continuity crimes Hawkman committed, his worst offense has always been his timing. The original arrived too late in the Silver Age and was never a hit his fellows were, including the Atom. His 1980s revival marinated in Bronze Age broth and was served predated. And when the runaway hit JLA could have been a relaunching pad, we got Zuriel instead. And the JSA spinoff series came too soon to benefit from Jeff Johns' heat on Green Lantern. You know, I never thought about it that way, but that's kind of a good point. Hawkman never really launched at the right time. Um, the closest they ever gave him to the right time of a launch would be New 52, but that series was garbage. So, hmm. that's Shag speaking, not Frank. But I think you'd probably agree with me. 
All right. Uh, here is where Frank loses his freaking mind. Uh, we're talking, which is one of the hallmarks of Frank. So we were talking about Starman, right? The Will Payton. She goes, you, he writes, you want to know what DC Comics hasn't needed more of since about 1970? Another straight white male, middle class, middle brow, middling peckerwood with an unobjectable personality and unexceptional motivation or origin being gifted unimaginably, if unoriginally unearned power from the heavens to do absolutely nothing to upset the status quo. Will Payton is a younger, less accomplished, unfashionable, and overly dimmer Hal Jordan with worse hair. He's another staunchy honky written by Roger Stern and drawn by that, oh yeah, that guy, meaning Tom Lyle, in the late 80s whose book didn't sell and was hopelessly out of step with the times, but still turned up his nose at JLI membership in a big showy performance way. DC has a sordid history of giving people of color featured in this very edition of Who's Who superhuman abilities like cybernetically enhanced speech and stabby sword. But when it comes time to do a powerhouse combination of Captain Adam and Martian Manhunter, they're all like, well, we really need a Willie Ames type for this gig. Also, a surefire, surefire star like him is no welfare case, but let's gift him with notable members of um, with notable members of Batman, Superman, and Green Lantern's rogues gallery because he just deserves a little leg up, just because. Uh, then Frank goes on to say, further, a black and red costume may be shorthand for cool badass, but it's also the official colors of, quote, we're desperately trying to salvage a character who was wearing an all-time hideous costume and have given up on any pretext of trying. Uh, then he points out, and this part's insightful, that both Wonder Man and Vibe also pull a Peyton, meaning the costume, and all three died relatively short order after making the switch. I never put that together. Wonder Man, Vibe, and Starman, after they all changed their costume, they all died. Hmm, interesting. So, yeah, Frank, uh, Frank's got a lot of hatred built up in there. And I think uh, he, he talks a lot about how he never read the Starman series. So, really, most of that's just based on him being pissed off that Starman was white. That's really what that boils down to. Wow. Thanks, Frank. Look- Look forward to Frank covering uh, Lou Reed's Starman song on the One Song Each podcast that he does. Uh, he also says the math on the V Minute podcast was exquisite. Cover every minute of V for exactly five minutes, one podcast per week. Shag and I would only have to commit to producing four hours worth of shows per year for 28 years. Where exactly was the problem? You're just lucky I'm concentrating on a weekly Buck Rogers in the 25th Century series for next year instead. <laughs> Uh, hopefully, you beat him to it with your recent Buck Rogers episodes you've done. <laughs> yeah, wow. maybe that maybe that satiated him for a little while. At least. Could be. Although I could spend a lot of time talking about Aaron Gray. Oof. Um, anyway, uh, Martin Gray from the Two Dangers for a Girl blog takes Frank to task. Thank you, Martin, for his rant about Starman. He goes, uh, "That was kind of a default rant, Frank, especially when you're having uh, Poppet Tom Lyle. Presumably, he worked hard to impress DC and had some good luck. And if the readers didn't like his stuff." I certainly did. He did, would not have gotten bigger gigs. That is absolutely right. Tom Lyle continued to go on to big names, you know, books. He got he did Robin uh, after Starman. He um, he did you know uh, for the Impact books. He launched I think it was Comet, which some people may laugh and say ha ha whatever. But at that point, they really thought the Impact books were going to be big deals. So it had been, starting off on the Impact books was it was a big thing. So I agree. Thank you, Martin. I enjoyed Tom Lyle's stuff quite a bit. I got a comment from Nicholas Prom from the Comic Reflections and Marvel Saga podcast, and he will be guesting on my MASHcast very soon. He says, another great episode, guys. A few quick things. Rob, I'm surprised you didn't mention the George C. Scott Changeling movie. It's pretty damn good. Well, I realized I did mention it. I just got the wrong star. I mentioned Charlton Heston in The Changeling. He's not. He's in the movie The Awakening, which is a different movie than Changeling. I was thinking of the George E. Scott movie Changeling, and Nicholas is right. It is. It's pretty damn good. <laughs> and by the way, that's a reference to uh, last episode. 
I made up a bunch of fake podcasts and blogs to go for the April Fool's Day thing, and it seemed like uh, a lot of the folks I picked on seemed to really enjoy. It. I got a lot of nice comments in the in the in the in the threads just about how much they enjoyed that. So hope you guys enjoyed that. That was my little present to y'all. So then we heard from Dr. Ange, paging Dr. Ange, paging Dr. Ange, uh, from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and also the Legion of Super Bloggers. Dr. Ange had lots to share, so we'll just pick and choose a couple of these items. Over on The Flash, he goes, I was one of those people who thought Wally's I need to eat a lot because of my metabolism power problem made perfect sense. I was also one of those people who got sick of it after a while. Thank you, Speed Force. Uh, as you say, this time for Wally was weird. Crisis ended with him reluctantly picking up Barry's mantle. That angst could have been played up. Instead, got this self-centered, womanizing, million millionaire Moby Wally. Thankfully, Wade picked up that legacy idea or concept. Agree completely. Agree completely, Dr. Ange. Then he talks about Laurel Gann. Now, keep in mind, Dr. Ange uh, is you know, the biggest Supergirl fan I know. He's dedicated a lot of his life to writing about Supergirl. So Laurel Gann being an analog for her, uh, for Supergirl, is, and, and him being a Legion fan, is sort of like a marrying of two perfect worlds. So he goes, Laurel Gann, here is the big win for the issue. Laurel Gann was created in the post-Galore timeline in 5YL, Legion of Superheroes number 6. Keith Giffen's universal rewrite to get a version of Supergirl into the continuity. And as Shag says, a lot of Laurel's origin cherry picks from Supergirls. This Who's Who entry came out when Legion of Superheroes number 11 was on the shelves. Two months earlier, Legion of Superheroes number 9 was Laurel's story filling in the origin and he gives a link there to the legion of super bloggers where he talks about it so i misspoke last time i said that i thought a lot of laurel gann's history was being real for the first time in who's who when in reality it had been two months prior so thank you Andrew, for pointing that out appreciate it i'll be sure to stop by your next surgery and point out all the mistakes you're making <laughs> uh regarding the mud pack he says i just don't get the fascination with the mud pack did they ever team up or use that name again outside of that one story not only did they get a Who's Who page, but they also got their own secret origins issue. The art is better than it should be. But I have to consider the Mud Pack, the Dexies Midnight Runners of 90s Who's Who, a one-hit <laughs> one wonder living on past glory. That's about as mean as Ange has ever gotten, I think, in any of the comments he's ever left. He really did not like Mud Pack. Oh, that's freaking hysterical, though. Not only did they get one, they got two Who's Who entries. They've been featured in the updates as well. Mm -hmm. so. I don't know. Right. I like the Mud Pack. That's What can I tell you? They were from our buddy Chris Franklin, also from the Firework Podcast Network, where he does shows with his wife, like the JLU cast. And he does a show on his own where he goes, where does he get those wonderful toys? Uh, Chris writes about He also Flint. does a show with Cindy. I said that. He does it with his wife, JLU cast. It's a joke. Never mind. Oh. If I have to okay. explain it, it's not funny. It wasn't funny to start with. So, all right. Uh, he talks about Flame Bird. He goes, probably got an entry here because there were still rumblings of a Titan West spinoff in the works. Barbara Kiesel was the Titans editor around this time, was also co-writing the Hawk and Dove series. Ugh. The team reunited in a Hawk and Dove annual Hawk about this time as well, edited by Michael Yuri. The idea, by the way, those vomit sounds are my own, not Chris's. Uh, the idea was to have Cyborg move out to the West Coast to follow his Star Labs love interest, Dr. Sarah Charles. And they would bring in some of the established Titans and added the new characters like Chris King from Dial H for Hero. Uh, and Chris says he wrote an article on the Titans West for Back Issue uh, with editor Michael Yuri, so it's all coming full circle. All right. He says, Flash, we all know Flash can fly from Super Friends, so no biggie. Seriously, though, I get that he's momentarily got both feet off the ground. And he's flying, Chris. I'm sorry. He's not flying. Uh, we got a comment from David. For some reason, both of us made funny noises during Chris's letter. Uh, we got a comment <laughs> from David Ace Gutierrez, uh, executive producer of Pod Dylan, and I'm not even going to do the Katana Banana joke because he gets all upset. 
He but says, you just Hulk did it. <laughs> he says, Hawk World loved this series. Didn't mind that it made Kidder Hall a murdering, recovering addict. And to mirror Shank's comments, just how space copy were the Silver Age versions. Not very and not often. At least in the pre-post-crisis reboot, we could see some real police procedural goodness. Once again, the blame lies at the feet of the adherence to a wonky post-crisis continuity and trying to plug holes that don't really exist. Who cares if Wonder Woman didn't found the JLA again? Or that the Hawks were, where, were there at some point? Those stories were told, and uh, 1986-87 was supposed to usher in a new age of new stories, not rehash, or to explain gaps in non-existent history. So, to Robert Fitzgerald Kennedy, I say this. No Kennedy. comics are yeah. You get your oh, own yeah. name wrong. <laughs> I see, see Fitzgerald there. Uh, I, I say this: no comics are necessary. Not the Flash, not Aquaman, not Superman, none. But some are damn good, and Hawkgirl was one of them. Hawkgirl was boring as balls until Ostrander and Truman beefed up her character, and Kidar was just a boring chunk of walked winged meat with a mace. I think Frank wrote this. God forbid someone inject something new into your precious Silver Age. Who are you, Dan Didio? And the fact that I'm agreeing with my nemesis Diablo Frank and Shag just says how far you have fallen. Rob Kelly. Wow. Yeah, that was quite the burn. I love that. <laughs> I agree with everything uh, he just said. So there we go. Then we heard from Chris Lewis. He was a longtime listener, first time caller here. Uh, not least because this is the first copy of any Who's Who that I actually own. I have a smattering of the Loose Leaf edition picked up randomly at cons long after they were first published. That's awesome, Chris. I'm so glad you finally got to follow along. Very cool. He talks about Deadline, who is a character that no one liked but me. Uh, he was this uh, generic assassin who I said he was sort of a utility character who would show up all over the place. And he says, I'm sure they hook handed Aquaman fought Deadline at some point. I seem to remember their battle at an issue in which Aquaman tried uh, out the abilities of his first cybernetic as opposed to the harpoon stuck in the bloody stump first attempt. Look at that. In the Aquaman comic. And Rob didn't even mention it. All right. I think it's probably just blotted it out in my memory. He says, uh, Dr. Polaris, the pose is dynamic, but his logo looks like it's though it's sewing straight off the cover of a Carl, Bark- Carl Barks Donald Duck comic. It totally <laughs> does. I had not even <laughs> thought about that until Chris said it. That's absolutely true. Yeah, it's if I could do the Donald Duck voice, I would, but you're right. It does look very much like Wow, that's upsetting. <laughs> there was more to talk about here. But he talks about damage. Fine, I'll read it. I have a soft spot for the character as he was <laughs> integral to the earliest use of damage, a comic I was seriously into in the only comic book I ever had a letter published in. That's awesome, Chris. And I, too, love the damage comic. So there. All right. Chris goes on to talk about The Flash because I was absolutely listening to a 1980s, uh, 1990s-era Flash podcast. Nestor Loeb's and LaRoque were the creative team on the first Flash book I ever bought around this time, issue 54 of their run, which was entitled Nobody Dies. And he goes on to describe it, and I thought it was kind of interesting, so I thought I'd read it here. Because Wally's on an airplane and befriends a stewardess in the way that early 1990s unenlightened Wally West befriends women. He's totally trying to hit on her. Midway through the flight, there's a, uh, there's a fight in some generic supervillains. A hole gets punched in the fuselage of the plane, and the air hostess gets sucked out into the void. Despite what this Who's Who entry would have you believe, the Flash can't fly. But he is a hero. So Wally launches himself out of the plane in midair. What follows is an inventive use of the Flash powers in an environment totally alien to the character. He tries to get himself and the stewardess down to the ground safely. It is one of my all-time favorite one-and-done issues, and the cover shows Flash and the stewardess falling to their doom. It's highly memorable. Awesome! That's really cool. I love that story. Thank you. 
All right, then we have our buddy Jeff R., who normally does the egregious omission of the month, but he's holding those for the end of this series. Uh, he's commenting. I made some jokes last time uh, with the April Fool's Day stuff. I said he was going to do a particular blog or something like that. Anyway, he's joking about how he would run an entry here in on his blog or podcast because he wants to run a backup feature of every time someone informs Superman or the reader that they've never actually seen the real Brainiac yet, which cracked my junk up. I almost fell off my chair laughing so hard because that has happened so so many times where where Superman's facing Brainiac, and then they tell him, "No, you've only ever faced my, you know, my automatons. You've never faced the real Brainiac." Like Jeff Johns did it not too long ago in the Superman comics, right before the New Fifty Two. So it cracked my junk up. So thank you, Jeff. That was freaking hilarious. Then we heard from our buddy Brian Linton about Mudpack. He says, Clayface has one live-action appearance, which I'm aware. Basil Carlo appeared in season two of Gotham, where he impersonates Jim Gordon as part of a plot by Hugo Strange. Look at that. Even Clayface has gotten into live-action. So cool. Then we heard Chuck Coletta. He was very excited. He goes, have you seen the solicit? It's a must-have for me. And it is a new collected edition called the Crisis on Infinite Earths Companion Deluxe. So uh, I haven't looked at all the details of it. I just noticed there was a misprint in it. But uh, they do cover, it looks like, all of the Red Skies crossovers all in one edition. So check that out, folks. Ward Hill Tally writes in to say, Changeling Film Referral, The Boy with Green Hair. Uh, I have to say, Ward Hill, I considered making that reference, but I thought that film was so obscure, no one would understand what I was talking about, but obviously I'm not the only one who's familiar with that movie. It stars Dean Stockwell when he was a child star, so uh, good, good job. Awesome. Okay. Uh, Ward Hill Terry continues to go on. He goes, I disagree about Ty Templeton's portrait of Max. I think there's just too much empty space in the picture. It's a lovely drawing of a desk, if you like that sort of thing. But Ty has uh, got conveyed the whole uh, sort of lack of concern of Max better. with a tight. He thought he would have conveyed the, the lack of concern for Max better with a tighter focus on him and not so much of the boring office. Uh, well, Ward, you know. I'm sorry you feel that way. I, I think the vast majority of us love it, so I'm sorry you didn't like it, but we are absolutely in love with that Ty Templeton piece. So, different strokes for different folks, and you are absolutely entitled to be wrong. <laughs> That's not going to make him very happy. So, <laughs> All right. Max Trapper writes in to say, I actually don't like that Despro page at all. It's by a great artist, sure, but Despro looks like he's relieving himself on a planet. Keeping it classy, I know. <laughs> you know, when I think about it, He's not wrong necessarily about that pose. Anyway, Max goes on to say, also, Zoom's Woozy Winks page is the greatest thing ever. I need, I really need to get a printed copy of Zoom's Who in my house. You know, don't we all want that? Then we're from our buddy Anthony Durso, who goes by the toy room and creates those awesome custom mega boxes. Uh, he talks about Changeling. He goes, uh, much like many pictures of me from this era, the mullet to date is ever. <laughs> can't even say it right. So he, Anthony says, much like the many pictures of me from this era, the mullet dates everything. Ugh. <laughs> I bet Rob um, feels very much at home when he watches the old Twilight Zone episodes and they refer to robots. I like that too. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Uh, he talks about Len, uh, Despero. He goes, who's this Adam Hughes guy? Was Len Wein busy this week? <laughs> Which, if you know your Who's Who entry, Len Wein, who is uh, you know, obviously a writer and an editor, drew the entry for Despero in the original Who's Who's. Very clever. Well, nice, nice inside joke there. And he goes, Katana, according to the cover of the recent trade paperback, Batman and the Outsiders, Volume 2, Katana is the breakout star of the insider, Outsiders. So there's that. Uh, much love here for Batman and the Outsiders. I was disappointed at first when it replaced Brave and the Bold, but soon grew to love the title. It's one of my favorites of this era. Awesome. I, you have some other fans of Batman and the Outsiders. With Rob being one and me being kind of, yeah. 
Then in the Secret Six, you know, we kind of bagged on the Secret Six, but he writes in to say, I remember their Stin Action Comics Weekly as one of the features I actually enjoyed. So yeah, good. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad some people enjoyed the Secret Six. That's fantastic. Siskoid from Corsair Network does First Strike Invasion, FW Team Up, and Ohatmu. Uh, he says that Maxima, with Swan doing Ocean Master in issue one, it's really weird that he insists on putting her underwater. What kind of clauses did Swan have in his contract? <laughs> Good questions, this question. And he also puts in another vote for the new 52 Eye Vampire series. So we may have to check that out. That's, people seem very popular. That really does sound like something you need to check out. Um, <laughs> the, vampires, man. Oh, so over them. Anyway, uh, he talks about the Newsboy Legion entry. He goes, interesting that there's two entries in this issue, both with blue and yellow heroes, and an image straddling two arrows. Hmm. That's very interesting. And then, at a left field, he writes in and says, I recently posted a crypto entry on my blog that shows the Wizwagon, realizing that its true potential is the dog whizzes in it. <laughs> what the heck? Thank you, Siskoid, for sharing that sort of off-the-wall comment. <laughs> it was very late at night when he wrote that, probably. Then we heard from Zoom Yukinori, of course, from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. He also does art for the line it is drawn on CBR, and he does entries for Who's Who, which we'll get to in just a bit. He says, a version of Clayface 2 appeared in live action in the Feet of Clay episode of the WB Birds of Prey series. He was portrayed by Kirk Baltz. Uh, and he resembled the Matt Hagen version of the character. His actual name was not revealed, and his origin was different. The character's son had the ability to turn people he touched into breakable clay statues, essentially a live-action version of Clayface 3. Look at that! More Clayface in live-action. Crazy. Heard from Robert Markham. He says, Laurel Gann's entry isn't the only one with a miscolored category bar. Maxwell Lord uh, also only reversed. It's red, even though he's supporting cast. You know, I didn't... and he mentioned that here. I missed it during the episode. However, I caught it later on when I was going through my binders, when I was putting all the entries from issue two back in. I'm like, oh, there's two Maxwell Lord entries. Sure enough, there were two of them where they misprinted the uh, the border, and then later on they went and reprinted them, because I know how much Rob loves that story. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> then we heard from Noah Tarnow. Noah writes in, he goes, fun bit of trivia. I wrote my college thesis on the history of Batman and pop culture. No lie. And when I was in the editing phase, I labeled various drafts of the essay, Clayface 1, Clayface 2, etc. And I think the final version was Clayface 9. And yes, I got a passing grade, even though the sociology professor, who was one of the evaluators, complained I didn't focus enough on the movies, but that was the year of Batman and Robin, so F him. <laughs> Uh, he says, sorry, I must be the only one who doesn't love that drawing of Flamebird. Kevin McGuire, my former improv comedy classmate, if I may brag, is a great artist, but her piggy nose ruins it for me. Oh, sorry, Noah. Everyone else, I think, is just absolutely in love with her. And he says he agrees with Shag that the black and red Will Payton costume is much better than the PB&J one. Yes! Thank you, Noah. You've redeemed yourself. we we got to get uh, Noah Tarnow on a podcast with Siskoid. They both have the improv backgrounds. That would be very That's true. interesting. Uh, he says, yes, Rob, and that drawing flashes flying, not running. See, what bothers me more is the headshot on the opposite side where his cranium looks excessively large, and it's like the Flash has hyper-evolved, is a hyper-evolved man from the future. Or maybe it's just a shadow in the inking. <laughs> See, that's kind of where my complaints about Greg, Greg LaRock came from. Was you know, There wasn't no – anyway, we'll just drop that. So uh, let's see. And then he, we, we talked about bat villains who have not appeared in live action. Where's where the Clayface comments are coming from? Uh, and he chimes in here. He points out in live action so far, we've, and this is across a bunch of different stuff. I'm cherry picking it here, but the Joker, Catwoman, Penguin, Riddler, Mr. Freeze, Matt Hatter, False Face, Killer Moth, Two Face, Poison Ivy, Bane, Scarecrow, Raja Ghoul, Talia, Harley, Killer Croc, and Deadshot. 
all have seemed to have appeared in live action. Then it goes on to say, it seems like Gotham has worked in everyone else. And he asks a good question. Has, has Man Bat ever appeared in live action? Has Clue Master, Dr. Phosphorus, the Eraser? Okay, we're scraping the barrel here. <laughs> I'm going to uh, say so, no to all of those. Well, I mean, who knows? Clue Master seems like he'd be easy peasy to do. And then you could even set up Spoiler because he's, uh, he's, Ma- he's Spoiler's dad. That would work really well, you know? Uh, then we heard from Mark Baker Wright from Black Rocks Toy Box. He writes, has the ventriloquist ever appeared in live action form? Or is he considered too low on the roster to be a main Batman villain? Hmm. Um, Noah Taro did respond saying that uh, he doesn't think so, but uh, there was a potential ventriloquist that was going to appear in one of the Nolan movies played by Robin Williams, but it never came to be. That would have oh. been really... Could you imagine? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Now, I wonder if... Robbins would have played the ventriloquist or if he would have played the dummy, like the voice of the dummy. I don't know. Um, I guess he would have played the ventriloquist probably, the guy you know who, ma- who manipulates the puppet. but huh. Or, well, or the puppet manipulates itself, really. All right. Uh, then for my buddy Tim Price, he goes, so much great artwork, Lyle's Deadline, Hughes' Despero, McGuire's Flamebird, Giffen's Laurel Gan, Templeton's Max, Adam's Mordrew, freaking name for <laughs> Bray Fogel's Mudpack, Kiesel's Newsboy Legion. My comic collecting was at its peak in this area. So many fond memories. So good. Thank you, Tim. That was an excellent recap of some awesome art last issue. He says, thank goodness lawn mowing season is coming, so I'll have more time for these episodes. Three freaking hours. Sheesh. Loved it, but sheesh. <laughs> well, well, folks, notice. We, if we didn't have so much feedback to cover, these shows would be shorter. <laughs> Please notice, folks, I'm running this episode, and if all goes well, we're going to maybe be two and a half hours. So look at that. Ha! Take that, Rob. Uh, we heard from Gus Casals, and he goes, regarding Flamebird, she was about to become a center regular on Hawk and Dove, uh, mostly as Betty. And there was even a Titans West uh, tease in one of the annuals. And McGuire did cover some of the internal art down the line. Huh. Thank you, Gus. Appreciate that. Heard from our buddy Joe X. He goes, my favorite Bill Loeb story I heard was that he, <laughs> that he and Dom Simpson uh, and another artist were at a Michigan convention. And there was an aspiring young man who came up to them and asked how to break into comics drawing. And, uh, and he goes, well, Simpson said, first you have to be left-handed. Really? The young man asked. Yes, replied the second artist, who was also left-handed. It's true, Bill Messner Loeb's added. I wanted to be a comic artist, but was right-handed. So, and he pointed to his missing arm with his pencil. The kid gasped, and they quickly assured him that they were just kidding. (laughs) What a great sense of humor. Now, I I had said in the last episode that Bill Messner Loeb's had recently lost his arm. That's incorrect. He's he's been without an arm for a very, very long time. I don't know exactly how long, but it's been very, very long. So that was not a recent part of his his, uh, troubles. Picturing Rocket Raccoon. I'm going to need that arm. Uh, and uh, he also mentions, oh man, Mordrew and his hat in their vaudeville days. That takes me back. Uh, I, mean, I think he, Joe's the only person to mention the clip that I used, which is Mordrew singing a song from the uh, Legends of the Superheroes TV special. And I hope you all appreciated the sacrifice I made having to watch part of that piece of crap just to grab that audio clip. You know, you talk about it so often that I bet you secretly love it. <laughs> I do. I thought I do. so. Okay, there you go. There you go. All right. Then from our buddy Gene Hendricks, who in fact named a show after that, Legends of the Superheroes. Uh, he also does the Hammer Strikes podcast and blog, the Quantum Cast, and much more over the Two True Freaks Network. Gene wrote, hearing you guys talk about the problem with the labels, meaning hero, villain, etc., on the binder issues of Husu, struck a chord with me. Uh, now, Rob, by the way, Rob can take a nap here. Uh, he goes, I played the West End game Star Wars RPG for a long time. A I'm going to go see time. Avengers Infinity War. I'll be right back. 
Uh, part of what I liked about the Star Wars game was that it wasn't a class and level game, meaning that your character was the sum of its skills. Later on, when Wizards of the Coast took over the game, they made it all class and level, which always bugged me. Now, here's my reasoning. What class is Han Solo? Is he a soldier, since he used to be an Imperial officer and became a rebellion general? Is he a scoundrel for being a smuggler? Is he a fringer, because he has uh, often on the outside of the normal society? It really doesn't work. The same applies here with someone such as Catwoman, who goes back and forth, or Pied Piper, who was a villain and then reformed. It would have made more sense in my mind to either do uh, not do any labels, or if they had to create families, all the Batman-related entries are blue, all the Superman-related ones are yellow, all the Flash ones are red. They could have had a sort of catch-all for all those, and like Starman, who was really standing Alone. Anything would have been better than forcing characters into a label just to have a color code on the page. That's a very interesting idea, Gene. Um, you're putting them by families doesn't uh, is not a bad idea. A lot of people organize their binders that way, actually. So you sort of tapped on something there. Now, the only problem I think you get into there is when you get a character like, I don't know, Felix Faust. Well, he's a villain of the Justice League. Well, you can't really have a Justice League family because then you break up Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, all those. Or you get, um, like, you know, as Frank was complaining, how Starman, you know, sort of uh, annexed a bunch of other villains. He annexed Dr. Polaris as his villain, you know. So you get, so where does Dr. Polaris fall? Is he a Starman villain or is he a Green Lantern villain, you know, or whatever? Or was it Green Lantern he used to fight? He was Green Lantern, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah, okay. So uh, that's Bob yawning through the RPG talk. Sorry about that, folks. Anyway, uh, so I don't know, Gene. It's, it's very interesting. And, boy, I'm glad you brought up West End Game Star Wars. I played the game for years. I love it. I also have a problem with the class and level issues. Like, uh, Mutants and Masterminds is a fun RPG, except I hate the, the level uh, problem that comes into games like that. So thank you. I really appreciate all that. That was fun, Gene, for me at least. Rob hated it. Uh, Siskoid actually says, uh, I like your categories. Not far from what they did with Legion, uh, Legion with the Dots, and Boom Patrol. That's a good point. You know, we've, we've seen it already where we see the Legion of Superheroes uh, has a label on the front of all those entries, probably because they were hard to recognize. And then later on they add them for Doom Patrol, and later on they add them for Legion with the Dots. So they did sort of create some family stuff. That's a good point. All right, folks, then we hear from Sean Walsh. Uh, Wal Sean Walsh. Sorry about that, Sean. It's a little late at night. He goes, like Rob, I was delighted by the Kurt Swan, Brett beating Maxima piece. Uh, I've been a big fan of Swan over the last several uh, years, and while I begrudgingly understand Rob and others' point about his work looking so outdated by the late 80s and early 90s, I still adore seeing his art, especially when he gets a good reaction out of the naysayers. Yeah, I, I wanted to include that comment because just to remind folks, and Chris Franklin, who's writing us a hate letter right now, we do like a lot of Kurt Swan art, you know, and we loved the uh, Maxima piece quite a bit. It says, regarding Metron, because something you didn't touch on in his overall status is in the fourth world, which perhaps ties into your glum view of him. He's absolutely an outsider amongst his own people, a watcher who meddles, and not always for good, but always in the pursuit of knowledge. As a result, he comes across as a sometimes noble slash sometimes obnoxious figure. Folks from Kirby to Byrne to Simonson have more or less stayed true to the character's design. Even Starlin, who despite his equally noxious death of the new gods, Culling, gave Metron uh, maybe the best death we could have possibly hoped for. As he meets his fate, he declares, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I've finally seen enough. Wow, cool. That was I, I really appreciate that, Sean. And the way I'll sum that up is Metron is a douchebag. So there we go. Okay. See, I didn't learn a thing. All right. I have to admit, that sounds kind of interesting, that final line that they give him. That's, that sounds Dude, neat. the death of the new gods is, is reviled as one of the worst miniseries to come out of that entire decade. So I wouldn't touch All right. it. Okay, good to know. Uh, Philemon, president of the Jericho Fan Club, uh, he says, Well done, gentlemen. I do have to say that I'm surprised Rob hasn't, Rob hasn't gotten more grief for joking about having a 45-minute show and then delivering the longest episode in recent memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, Philemon, I picked on him for you. There you go. 
he talks about Booster Gold. Now, check this out. He goes, I know I get mocked for my love of Jericho, a cross I'm happy to bear, but Booster is a character I truly love. His original series is one, uh, is one of the first that I collected to completion, and I actually refer to my comic book room as the, I don't know how to say this word, Relo? Is that how you would say it? Relo Towers? Um, no idea. I assume that, which was a booster's base of operations in that original run. In keeping with that motif and with the help of my incredibly patient math teacher's wife, I painted one wall uh, with booster's emblem. Yeah, folks, uh, he, he, this has been posted on a blog elsewhere, too. But he actually, one of his walls was that blue and yellow logo for booster gold in his comic book room. How freaking cool is that? So, Philemon, huge props to you for that, man. And, and that's not something I say for you very often, uh, but huge props on that. That's incredible. It says I'm also a big fan of Changeling and of all the Titans, although I can't uh, even I can't spin the mullet in a positive way. <laughs> Grummet's art is enjoyable, though especially in the bottom right picture. Hey, look, a Jericho cameo. And for the record, Gar <laughs> Logan will always be a Changeling to me. Uh, there you go. We both like the name Changeling, so maybe maybe we're on the same page, Philemon. And he goes on to say, we do not speak of Titans Hunt, though, Shag. Oops. Bum, 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 bum. Terribly sorry, Philemon. You just went back off the rails. He also says uh, regarding Flash, sorry, Shag, but I agree with Rob on this one. Flash is definitely flying. Really, Rob? I I think it's funny that you highlighted that comment to read it. Do you really want to point out that Philemon is agreeing with you? That's sort of like (laughs) counterproductive to the point you're trying to make. I'm just saying. (laughs) Uh, and then uh, Philemon wrote, since the last time you came up on the podcast, I have read the Will Payton Starman series now, and I have to admit that Shag was right. The series was quite good, although it was clearly running out of steam right before it ended. Well, you're right about that. Uh, it really was kind of running on fumes to the end, and then they tied it into Clips of the Darkness Within, so it didn't end on a great note, but I'm glad you enjoyed the series. There we go. Something else we can agree on, Philemon, uh, through the bars at the Insane Asylum. There from my buddy Canada Clark. He goes, I need to make a comment about Norm Brayfogle. I also know that I may get blasted. I think he's an amazing artist, especially during his Batman days. However, I think his who's entry... I think his who's who entries were terrible. It looks like he just phoned those entries in. They look unfinished, and they are missing some elements. I remember being super excited for the Batman entry and then sadly disappointed. The Mud Pack was a great storyline, but an awful entry. Um, Clark, I'm not going to bash you. Because I'm, and I'm not going to say they're terrible, but I am going to support your point a little bit that I'm not seeing Norm freaking Brayfogle in these who's who pages. I'm seeing Norm Brayfogle. I'm not seeing Norm freaking Brayfogle yet. So I'm waiting. I'm, I think the Batmobile's coming up maybe somewhere in here. And I seem to remember that was pretty amazing, but we'll have to see. A comment from Michel Fife, friend of the network, and he also does the series Copra, and uh, also just recently did a miniseries image called uh, Bloodstrike. And he says, another great episode, guys. I should mention that Bill Messner Lobes does indeed have a GoFundMe page, and he provides a link. And if you look at it, you see that the, uh, the, the GoFundMe page is about three-fourths of the way funded. So if you are interested, uh, go follow uh, the link and contribute some money to Bill Messner Lobes. It's a way to show how much you appreciate what an amazing writer's done for us over the years. So our chance to give back. Then we're from Jimmy McGlinchey, my buddy from the Irish JLI embassy. And he writes in to say, Captain Boomerang, uh, another great listing. All the history in that listing was taken from his upcoming solo issue in the Suicide Squad that came out about a month or a month after that Who's Who issue. All right. So another example of uh, dumping a bunch of history in a comic and then putting in Who's Who immediately. He goes, Flash, while everyone raves about the Mark Wade run, it was the Messner Loeb's run which got me into the character and made him much less of a money-grabbing idiot that he was when he first started out in the Baron run. All right, another prop for Messner Loeb's. Um, uh, regarding the Mud Pack, he says, great storyline in Detective Comics. So, there we go, another vote for the Mud Pack. <laughs> then we heard from Luke Giaconetti. 
Jack and Nettie from the Bean Carter Hall blog, also the Earth's Destruction Directive podcast over on the Future Freaks Network, and he's a cop on the edge. Uh, not really, but we just like to say that because his name is so cool. Luke goes on to say, uh, you guys just discussed Hawkworld. I've only read the series in 2014, having missed all of the wringing of the hands and gnashing of the teeth over the reboot, so I approached it on its own terms without the context of time, and frankly, I really enjoyed it. As far as being so caught up in its own continuity, I'll grant you that, but again, when I was doing my read-through, that was just fine because I was not interested in the other DCU stuff going on. Uh, I do find it odd that the entry is Hawkworld when it should be Thanagar. The term Hawkworld was a reoccurring theme for the series, referring to a planet where the strong prey upon the weak. And Thanagar was specifically a Hawkworld, and Earth had a lot of its traits. Although Katar and Shayara discovered many differences between the planets. And he, cre- he gave us this link. He says, I also created a Hawkworld drinking game. And it's over on his Bean Carter Hall, Carter Hall blog from 2014. And I checked it out today. Holy freaking crap, it is hysterical. If you read the Hawkworld series, you've got to go check this out. Again, it's a Hawkworld drinking game. You can find the link in our comment section or just go to beancarterhall.blogspot.com and look for the, the Hawkworld drinking game. It is spot freaking on. It just, oh, I don't even want to go into it, but it's just so freaking funny. Over from my buddy Jose Rivera, he goes, uh, the issue and the discussion on the trading card aspect brought me right back to my childhood. Between this, the DC Cosmic Cards, and an odd issue of the original Who's Who my aunt had let me uh, read, this was my first DC Comics education. Yeah, I knew about Superman and Batman and Robin and Wonder Woman, but for the characters I wasn't familiar with, stuff like this taught me about origins, real names, important stories, and first appearances. I couldn't get enough of it. This particular issue, issue holds a special place in my heart because it was the first and only issue of the loose leaf I got as a kid. I remember taking it home, putting the pages at the end in my Trapper Keeper. I think you used that as a stinger in one uh, episode, didn't you, Rob? I believe Uh, so. Put it in my Trapper Keeper and going through them one by one. I even hung a few on my wall. I can safely say that this issue, Who's Who, is responsible for my knowledge and love of Booster Gold and the Will Payton Starman. When I th- when someone mentions Mr. Gold, my mind flashes to this picture of his entry. When I think of Will Payton, I think of this costume rather than the original peanut butter and jelly suit. To this day, I still have that Trapper Keeper from elementary school, and you better believe those pages are still in there. Because, P.S., the mud pack freaked me out as a kid. <laughs> you know, I want to say something about the Will Payton Starman. So, all right. In, in, in DC Comics, people are coming back from the dead all the freaking time. Happens all the time. Why can't Will Payton come back? I realize James Robinson did some stuff with his origin. But that can be undone. It's been, my God, Starman's been over for 10 years, 15 years now. There's a reason Will Payton come, couldn't come back. He'd make a great addition to a Justice League team or something. We need Will Payton. We need him. All right. Uh, we heard from Joseph Kimbler uh, from the DC Vault, and he says that one bad thing about being caught up now is I have to wait for the podcast. I've been listening to other podcasts on the network, something for everyone. Oh, thank you, Joseph. We appreciate that. Then we heard from Laurel at Mountain Flower One. Uh, we made a joke in the last episode about Laurel Gand and how uh, it could be Laurel Mountain Flower Gand. And she goes, I don't know anything about Laurel Gand beyond what you said on the pot beyond what you said on the podcast. Aside from the questionable costume choice, she sounds like a swell gal. She's welcome to buy, borrow my at Mountain Flower Twitter handle whenever she needs it. Thanks for making my day. And P.S., I'd like to get one of those Katana Banana franchises. Do you have the contact info? <laughs> yes, Laurel. Please get in touch with David A. Gutierrez for a Katana Banana franchise. <laughs> There's always money in the Katana Banana stand. <laughs> that is uh, that's never going to get old, folks. Never, ever, ever. And it pisses David off so much it makes it even that much better. Uh, Alright, Jeff Peterson says, I officially uh, listed a screw you from the Irredeemable One. My work here is done. Well, Jeff, screw you again. There you go. Uh, our Jeff, buddy Aaron has- Jeff, as, Jeff, as someone who's gotten a, a lot of those, it, it, it doesn't ever get any uh, any older. 
<laughs> it's like a badge of honor, though, really. I mean, yeah. you know. Uh, Aaron Head Moss, he goes, I got to say, Shag, how cute do you think there's going to be a second Aquaman movie? <laughs> Ouch! Man, that's a sting, Aaron. Oh, wow. And, of course, Aaron does the Headcast Network with, you know, Task Force X and Starman and Manhunter Hour. I mean, a million shows. You check that in, G.I. Joe. Check all those out. Uh, Michael O'Brien says, I want someone to say they ordered these. (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. So we've talked a lot on the show about how people ordered their binders, you know, how they they put all their various uh, loose leaves in what order. He goes, I want someone to say they ordered their who's who in autobiographical, like in high fidelity. I want to find the Flash entry. I have to remember when I first bought a Flash comic. (laughs) That's crazy, Michael. Funny, but crazy. Then we have from Michael LaCroix, who uh, he he wrote us about the missing entry for Woozy Winks that we carried from, uh, talked about uh, from Zoom Zoo last episode. He says, what do you mean the missing entry? He's in the damn theme song. Well, that's correct, Mike. Uh, in fact, Zoom made us an honest, uh, honest because after all those years, we finally had a woozy winks who's who entry. Speaking of which, it is now time for Zoom's Who, which is Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe. This is where Zoom creates original who's who artwork and content in the original who's who style with the yellow dots and everything for characters that just got missed. First up, it's a, it's a two-page entry. On the top is Astrolad, and on the bottom is Batman Jones. So <laughs> now, Astrolad appeared, he was a Superboy foe, New Adventures of Superboy, so you know he's kind of a mort. Uh, it, Art here by Kirk Schaffenberger, Dave Hunt, and Zoom Yukonori. And the gist is, Ashalad, in the future, when he's 30 years old, he travels back in time to when he's 16, because he figures out that you know everyone is impressionable when they're 16, and that's really where you develop, and he wanted himself to become more confident in the future. So he goes back in time to adjust his own personality. Doesn't really make sense. Just keep going with it, folks. Anyway, he astral projects back to his 16-year-old body, and uh, he then... Somehow that gives him superpowers and he becomes a hero. And he wants to reveal his identity to the world to further increase his popularity and make his future self more confident. Well, Superboy puts the kibosh on that. And first appearance is New Adventures of Superboy number three. Uh, Rob, thoughts on Astrolad? Uh, I had. Did we ask for this? Did it, did anyone ask for this? I have no oh, memory of Astrolad. Like, really? Did we ever even mention this character? Like normally, uh, you know his. Zoom's listings come from some comment we make or something, but I have no memory of Astrolat, although I am intrigued that his alter ego is movie producer Joel Silver. That's kind of interesting. Oh, wow. We should describe him, by the way. He's got a black bodysuit with a purple belt and purple cuffs on his wrist and his legs, uh, long hair, and a very kind of it's very stylized, sort of interesting-looking mask you don't see very often. Uh, but here, the deal is, um, no, Zoom doesn't go after characters we suggest. I mean, sometimes that might. I mean, you did get TRS-80 WizKids from a, from a suggestion. Yes. But he goes after he goes after unique characters that didn't get a Who's Who entry but probably deserved one. There's been a whole bunch of ones that you and I didn't reference that he puts out there. The Batgirl uh, one with the Viper lady. Um, there's been a lot of well, different ones. That's true. In fact, yeah, you're right. You're right. You know, I've got my Zoom's Who mug right here. Uh, and, I'm, and you know what? Interestingly enough, uh, I've had this mug now for, what, over a year, and Astrolad is on here already. Look at that. So Zoom really was planning ahead. Wow, that guy's – he's really good at planning ahead. In fact, I think the, the Done, in Wonder, Done in One Wonders podcast show, I think he's got it planned out for like the next 20 episodes or something. Amazing. What a planner, that guy. Um, and amazing production values. I mean, that show, wow. 
mean, just puts the rest of us to shame. Um, and that, I'm not kidding. So, and then the next, the bottom half is Batman Jones, which is like this little tiny short version of Batman, <laughs> like a little kid. And uh, in the front, it's him zooming in. In the background, you see this little tiny kid reading a book, and he looks so excited. And then you see, uh, and this is Surprint too. We got Surprint, and you got Batman and Robin running with a little Batman Jones. Uh, it, it, you know, it, as much as we're bagging on these characters, Zoom really did a phenomenal job. I didn't mention an Astro Lad. Sorry, the the Surprint there was the face of the guy and him punching out Superboy, getting all these uh, elect- uh, um, experimented on. So, amazing job by Zoom. Really is. The characters are a bit of morts, but really good job. So, Batman, here's the deal. Art by Sheldon Moldoff, uh, Charles Paris, and Zoom Ikenori. And this couple gets saved by Batman, right? So, they decide to name their baby Batman. So, he's Batman Jones. That's his actual name. And the kid gets fascinated with Batman, so he develops uh, his own superhero Batman costume. Uh, he's got a, he's got a decent detective skill, so he wants to go help Batman. He actually helps on two cases, and eventually Batman and Robin try and talk him out of the hero gigs. I mean, this guy's got to be six years old, seven years old, probably. I don't really know. And uh, they eventually convince him to quit. And instead of uh, being uh, Batman being his hobby, he takes up stamp collecting. <laughs> Very cute, uh, adorable entry. Yeah, I mean, I have t- I've talked about before that uh, the the Tierish eighty Whiz Kids is my favorite listing that Zoom has done. In fact, I liked it so much I made it into a T-shirt. Uh, but this Batman Jones is like I think like a close second. I just love it. I love the dead-eyed stare the kid has, courtesy <laughs> of Sheldon Moldoff, and he's collecting his stamps and just the idea of like a little bat kid running around like a, like just imagine a six-year-old being a superhero, like a six-year-old. Like, think about the six-year-olds that you've met. They can barely, you know, not poop themselves. <laughs> They're running around being a superhero. I just love everything about this. I might have to turn this into a T-shirt as well. I don't know. I mean, both of these look so legit as who's who interests. Oh, they I, totally know, do, yeah. They're amazing how legit they look. So, well done, Zoom. Another exceptional one. Now, Zoom also was kind enough to send us a couple of pages he found uh, in other comic books. He really was hitting our sweet spot here. He says, these are also who's who. There is an entry here from Sugar and Spike. It's a typical Sugar and Spike joke. And that strip is called Who's Who. He also found a sad sack strip, which is called Who's Who. Neither of which have anything to do with the you know DC Comics or, or, or a Who's Who sort of catalog, but the fact that Rob loves Sugar and Spike so much, and I love Sad Sack so much, and both had a Who's Who thing, that is it's like a joy having these things. I absolutely love it. And then, it's Rob, do you, want to, do you want to describe this last drawing that Zoom gave us last month? Well, he did a drawing of the Katana Banana Stand, which is <laughs> Katana in banana form, uh, slicing, uh, I guess, like, well, different fruit. I guess it's like an orange and he's slicing than an apple, so... Uh, and it's got, of course, a, like a pitch perfect logo with using, and, and on the one hand, the katana, we see the katana blade, and the other one is the banana slicing through the word banana. It's uh, as, as, as usual with Zoom, pitch perfect. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's wonderful. So, the katana banana stand lives on. Thank you to Zoom. All right, folks. Uh, now we're going to take a second to thank everyone who shared our show shared our show on the social media timelines, meaning Facebook and Twitter. It's a long list of names. It's like reading a phone book. I say it every episode, folks, but it's really important we recognize each one of these people because they help promote the show. They really do by sharing it out there. And I'm not talking about just liking it. I'm saying they're actually sharing it on their timelines. Uh, each and every one of these folks are an important part of the Who's Who community, so we appreciate it. So here we go. <clears throat> our thanks to Ashford Wright, Brad Glynn. Caleb Nauer, Cash Flag, Charlie Reads Comics, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher J. Warden, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comic Reflections, Dale Russell, David Ace Gutierrez and the Katana Banana, David Byer Jr., DC Comic Fans, DC in the 80s, 
uh, I don't know how to say this. Diak TV eight Dabim. Curse you, Twitter handles. Anyway, uh, Debbie Rangel. Diak deactivate Dabim. <gasps> oh, that's so clever. Except I couldn't read it. Okay, there we go. Uh, Del Trabal, Dion Powell Jr., Doug Fwig, Doctor Ange, Doctor G of Nerdology, Gordon Tolton, uh, It's Plastic Man, Jack Dower, Jeff Hunter, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Justice Trek the Podcast, Kirby Cast, Connell. Kyle Benning, Legion Bloggers, Longbox Crusade, Longbox of Darkness, Luke Dobb, Luke Jackanenny, Malicious Glee, Mark D. White, Martin Gray, Max Romero, Michael Bailey, Negrosonic 20-something Warhead, TM, Ollie Queen, Paul Hicks, Rad Adventures, Relatively Geeky, Richard Field, Bold Spine Podcast, Russell Rosenkild, Sam Pitratzinski, Scott X, Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Sherlock 7, A Kane, Siskoid, uh, Speed Force, Steve Sellers, Ted Kilmington, The Flash Podcast, Tim Price, Troy Howe, Two Frog One, Willie Yarborough, Xenoxog, Xenophiles, and Zoom Yukonori. Our thanks to all of you folks. All right, so folks, if you want to look at some of these entries on the podcast, Rob, where should they go? Go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and you can look at the accompanying gallery post along with this, uh, the post for the episode itself. Yep, and on the episode itself, please leave your comments. We want to see and hear everything you have to say about these entries and tell us how Rob was wrong about all of them. Please. Uh, I think that's going to do it. Of course, you can find us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, FW Podcast, Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can find Rob under every other Twitter handle under the sky, including more he added this week. Um, (laughs) That's not a joke. Uh, You can find me at Firestorm Fan. Uh, Anyway, let's just wrap this up here, folks. Uh, uh, Rob, until next month, who's who's next? Next. Count vertigo to you, peasant. <laughs>